Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 1053 with Nick Kosovich. Like every bar wants to have house-made syrups, house-made products, everything done exclusive. Not you know, you can't get these flavors anywhere else. Everybody wants that. But what it takes to do that is expensive. It's a lot of labor, a lot of inconsistencies. Uh, it, uh, labor is an issue, cost is an issue, and, and consistency is an issue, and efficiency. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. If you're tired of the other tater, you ought to try Tater Cakes because it's time to serve the tater your guests deserve. Tater Cakes are shredded potatoes mixed with delicious flavors. All the best parts of a baked potato in the perfect handheld package from the freezer to the fryer to the guest. Serve them in a variety of different ways and in different applications. Great for dining, delivery, and to go. With all the uncertainties of the world today, we should be able to be certain that our food always has great flavor. And Tater Cakes provides that comfort in every bite. Request samples at taterkegs.com. That's T-A-T-E-R-K-E-G-S.com, taterkegs.com. My name is Eric Cacciatore. I'm the founder and host of Restaurant Unstoppable Podcast. The Predictive Index, or PI, is a talent optimization platform that helps build happier and more productive teams. With the PI software, you will lower employee turnover, train your managers to be leaders, and keep your employees engaged. You can try PI for free and receive a 30-minute consultation from a certified PI partner, Ed Doherty, from One Degree Coaching. Head to restaurantunstoppable.com slash try PI. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit. Profit, more butts and seats, and that's not it. If you are interested in this, head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. This episode brought to you by Owner.com. Owner.com is the leading all-in-one platform for restaurant marketing. Owner.com powers everything from SEO-optimized websites, direct online ordering, automated email and text marketing, built-in loyalty programs, zero commission delivery, and branded mobile apps for your restaurant that's integrated right into your POS. With Owner.com, there's no contract, no hidden fees, and nothing to lose. Join thousands of restaurant owners using Owner.com to grow direct online sales, save thousands in third-party fees, and simplify their online ordering presence all in one. Book a free demo today at owner.com slash unstoppable and see why owner.com is the number one rated restaurant marketing software. 
With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, CEO and co-owner at Earl Giles and beverage director at Mr. Paul's Supper Club, my man, Nick Kosovich. Are you feeling unstoppable today? I am, yes. Oh, man, I am looking forward to today's conversation. Excellent. Me too. Uh, And after getting all of your titles squared away, I think we're ready to rock and roll. Are you feeling unstoppable? I'm unstoppable. Yeah, Let's go. Let's do this. Uh, I honestly want to point out how amazing of a time I had last night. Awesome. After talking to our boy Tommy, mm-hmm. he referred me to you off air and getting this big picture of what it's like to create an experience and being able to live that experience. I'm so excited for the direction I'm going with the show because I get to talk about the thing and then experience the thing. And it's no secret why you guys are successful, man. I just wanted to give you that little nod right no, there before you. we got into it. Yeah, it was a lot but of fun last night. Let's keep that, that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quarter mantra. What do you got for us? So, and this is kind of funny because I didn't know where this came from, but I must have heard it on the TV or somewhere in passing in the last couple of days. And it kind of stuck with me is uh, pressure is a privilege. And then I was like, uh, who, who said this first? And it turns out to be tennis star Billie Jean King. Uh, and so I went down that rabbit hole for a minute, but I think the mantra uh, of that has been kind of uh, resonating with me as of late as I have felt a lot of pressure and I kind of flipped the script and realized like how lucky I am to feel that pressure. What, read between the lines there. What do, they, what do you think is meant by pressure is a privilege? What's, what's the uh, message? The way that I interpret it, and this could be completely not the way it is meant to be interpreted, but why it stuck with me uh, in this past week was there you go was uh, uh, you know the, the simple fact that I'm in a position in my career in a current place in my career that the pressure I feel from my work or the pressure I feel from the balance of work and family I have a beautiful family and I have a beautiful career and it is hard to balance those two things and it's a privilege uh, for me to have that opportunity and it, it in it in a in a time where I have felt a lot of weight on my shoulders as of recently. Uh, it was very helpful. Yeah, man. Mindset's everything in this industry. And it's one of the reasons why I'm geeking out as of late of this idea of like what what's going on between our ears. Like what's going on in this brain of ours mm-hmm. the, to figure out the discipline, to figure out the psychology, to, get, to have the mindset, to show up and to embrace the shitty things and embrace the suck, you know? And that's what I hear in this I, this mantra of pressure is a privilege. Like you're, we're constantly under pressure in this industry, and I think that pressure bubbles up anxiety and fear and emotion in us. We are not those things. Those are that's evolutionary like psychology, like telling us to save energy and like to make us think and be aware of things, but. We don't have to be afraid of things, you mm-hmm. know, like we can choose to embrace that. What's going through your mind as I'm sharing this? Yeah. I mean, I think I'm, I'm continually in the pursuit of balance between everything. And I think that, um, as I'm getting older, I feel like I'm learning how to be more in control of the balance between work life and personal life and family and, and work and, and those types of things that can pull you in, in several directions. Yeah. It's when something isn't clicking it's like when it all works out it all is all very smooth right and then if there's something you know at home or something with the work and it starts to feel like all of a sudden the the mountain that you've created for yourself can very much show its nasty side sometimes i think and that that to me is 
also a lot of perspective. You know, it, on any given day, you could feel that overwhelming, you know, kind of wave of like, oh, what have I gotten myself into? Whether you feel the wave or the pressure, you're still going to do the shit. Yeah. So choose, you know, choose not to let it control your thoughts because it's not going to make it the experience better. Yep. You know, uh, I love the way we got this thing started. And uh, so I got, like I mentioned, I got to hang out with you and Tommy and Peter last yeah. night. And I got to experience Mr. Paul's Supper Club and it was amazing. Yeah, thank you. Uh, the food was amazing. The people were amazing. Amazing. The vibe was amazing, and uh, I, I have literally had no clue anything about you as of last night because I'm literally drinking from a fire hose right now, yeah. letting people just like refer people to yeah, me. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I'll take it because the speed of trust. Like Tommy knows this industry, the market in in Minneapolis way better than I do. Mm-hmm. But I had the privilege of looking into uh, your background this morning and doing some research, and I was like, holy shit! I was like, I had no clue who I was talking to last night, and hanging out with. Man, you're super successful. Like, you have this incredible career of of traveling the country and helping restaurants open and, yeah. and helping their their bar program. And like, I I know that you're into EOS. That came out last night yeah. too, so I'm yeah, excited yeah, yeah. to get into that. But w- take us back to the beginning. Where does it make sense to start sharing your story? Yeah, I mean, I guess like you know, in the restaurant side of things. You know, I think that the the beginning is, you know, I my first restaurant gig was at a place called Palomino here in Minneapolis. And this is, you know, 2000s, you know, 2001, um, maybe even like, yeah, right around there. So I, I had, you know, graduated from Faribault High School, which is about an hour south of here, and then went to school at the University of Minnesota for theater for one year and then uh, was asked not to come back. Uh, and then I found myself uh, in a restaurant, you know. And <laughs> well, you're still in theater today, man. You're, yeah, you're putting on a show for yeah, sure yeah, as a bartender. Yeah, yeah no I, was a, I, I was a musician for, for five years uh, in, in my early 20s as well. And um, when I started to let that go to the wayside, I found a lot of the things that I needed from the music world and performance I was finding behind the bar for sure. So, What um, did you need? Uh, you know, entertain. I'm an entertainer. I mean, yeah. at the heart of it, that is what I am. And and uh, and so, you know, I, I I I wanted to be a stand-up comedian when I was I you know, still 18. Want to be a <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Every now and again, I think about getting up on stage I, and getting it started. Yeah. Encourage you. To, I'll hold you to it if you hold <laughs> yeah, me to it. Yeah. Uh, but I want to point out too, not just an entertainer, but a creator. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're very much a creator. Mm-hmm. I think it, it manifests in the drinks you create. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that not fair to say? It is, yeah. I mean, you know, for me, so you know, being a theater kid uh, and a performer and a musician, and then you know, uh, so you know, I, I was working at the Palomino, and that was like a means to an end. That was like a job that I, you know, I was I was doing music most of, in most of my free time, and the Palomino, you know, would let me kind of come and go as I please. So I do shows and travel and, and all that. And then, you know, I never, it wasn't until I, I started at this place called the town talk diner in 2006. That's when like the restaurant world opened its beautiful eyes to me in the way of like, wow, you can be creative. You can have a, a, a voice. You can change people's lives. Even if it's just for a couple hours, um, you know, watching, Tim Niver, who who is you know one of my mentors here in this in this industry, watching him work that floor, uh, that opened up everything to me. So him and his partner at the time, Aaron Johnson, uh, were you know my two mentors in this industry, and I worked with them side by side every day. Aaron behind the bar teaching me his his viewpoint of the bar. He came from the culinary side. He was a chef and looked at the cocktail world in, in a very culinary 
way, you know, using things like raspberry coulis and cocktails and stuff like that. He didn't have like the classic chops or cha- classic technique on bartending, like you see it at the violet hours of the world and things like that. But he was teaching us how to create flavors mm. and add alcohol to those flavors, you know. And, and uh, that was kind of where I learned uh, a lot of the cocktail stuff. Interesting. Uh, I want to pull some layers back on this. Um, I had the. I mean, I've gotten to speak to now Tommy. We mm-hmm. had Tommy, your partner, on the show. Um, we had um, Tim Niver on the show. We've gotten to speak a lot about Town Talk Diner. Yeah. Um, and this is like a, a, a really. I don't know. I feel like very familiar with this this restaurant now because I've had <laughs> gotten to talk about it twice in the yeah, past yeah, three yeah. days. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now now this being the third time, I'm um, talking about Tim and in, in his his stageman or his uh, his stage presence, if yeah. you will. You know, his showmanship is what I was trying to say. Uh, like, really paint the picture of that. Yeah, and, and I, it's interesting to talk about the Town Talk Diner because in this market, and it's a long time ago now too. So like, there's a huge 2006, amount, 2007, yeah, 2008. Yep, exactly. That's, yeah. I was there from 2006 to 2009. Okay. And so there's a whole population that has no idea what we're talking about when, we, when we're talking about that. But when you think about like the you know folks in their you know late 30s, early 40s ish range of people in the bar world, like most people are connected to that shop in some way, shape, or form from this market. So it had a lot of great talent come through those doors, uh, including Jesse, who's my partner here, worked there uh, as well. Um, and so you know what what Tim provided was this idea first and foremost that like we were in control of the destiny and i think like working at a place like the palomino although it was great to learn your 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 chops and great to learn learn structure and understand like that you know the corporate restaurant world isn't all bad like there's a lot that you learn from that i learned the art of hospitality in a very methodical way from them but then getting to work with tim and aaron at this independent restaurant that had no corporate structure in it and it was it was art and it's this old diner yeah yeah yeah, man it was this old diner that they they revamped into a finer diner and it was like it was it was cheap but high end and high quality at the same time they had a chef that you know worked at the french laundry and you know we were doing you know halibut dishes with you know pork burgers and onion rings all at the same time we were doing adult milkshakes and you know it was like this uh uh you know very new and exciting and the music was loud and the and the service was loud and Tim is is holding court and I think it's like that holding court that bar like like bravado like just like chest out and head up and like just ready to do it and and what I watched him get away with with that like he has this like art of like kind of getting under people's craw a little bit but they like it you know yeah, like you it's know very it's very artistic i loved like, it i loved yeah. it and i was not as good as it as he was i was not as good about you're it you're pretty and good at it man I, you've well, given me some zingers in the past yeah yeah but when i was learning i i offend i would offend people you know yeah. and he would he would because like he would take this we call it the point position at town talk and so you're the first person and the last person everybody sees like you're the face of the show for the night and that was where tim really shined but i also like i wanted to do that yeah and sometimes i, I had to look learn it's, it's a fine balance <laughs> yes. you know and i think what what i picked up on tim is like he's saying one thing but his face and his body is saying something totally mm-hmm. different so you're like i'm hearing this yeah but 90 percent of everything else is you're fucking with me yeah you yeah. know and yeah. like and it's kind of a little smirk at the end like yeah. a little like kind of a wink yeah. but like or a tilt of the head yeah pause like you got that right i saw him at saint dinette a few weeks ago we were doing this bloody mary festival and i was meeting my son uh over there for lunch 
And you know, I got to sit with him at, at his bar counter for a little bit and talk, and it was great. But just watching him interact with guests again, I haven't seen him do that. You know, people coming in, and he's just poking and saying goodbye. And yeah, yeah I just I, I love it. I appreciate it so much. And he's been a big impact, I think, on a ton of people that are doing great stuff in this market. Yeah, um, it definitely sounded like magic in a bottle. Mm-hmm. You know, and the little context for Tim and what I learned. If you did not check out his episode, it was episode uh, one thousand fifty-two. So literally the one just before this. Oh, sweet. Um, and um, we get into uh, his background and how he developed that because mm. he was in New York City at these steakhouses and the, the the energy, the people he was dealing with, you had to own the room because if you yeah. didn't own it, they would. Musso and, and Frank's, right? Is that uh, so Maybe. I can't remember the details of the okay. restaurants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was a steakhouse in New York City. And like he just he, his his narrative was I just had to step in and like own that room because like if these big personalities come in they try to like control the situation but you just have to draw that line and not let them cross the line by meeting them where they're at you know but like in a way that doesn't piss people off like it was and then you know obviously he went to Las Vegas or yeah Las Vegas with the um Bellagio. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he just had this all this culmination of uh, experiences to, to bring that to the Minneapolis. Yeah. At a time where none of that really existed in the friendly Midwest. Mm-hmm. You know, it was absolute juxtaposition. And a- Town Talk Diner was on East Lake Street. Like it was a destination. Yeah. It was not in a you know part of town you'd expect this like you know high-end fine dining yeah. experience kind of thing and it wasn't fine dining either it was like really great food at a at a really nice price and but the service was yeah it was just I learned how to be. I learned how to strive for excellence there yeah. and I learned that it was attainable and I learned that we could be in control of the creativity right. and I learned that that service was an art. Yeah. So frankly speaking, I felt like this podcast is for the town talk diners of the world because as amazing as of a picture as we're, we're painting right now, after speaking to Tim, I know that you guys did a lot of things right on the back end. There was a lot of issues with yeah. fiscal responsibility and getting control of the numbers and, uh, not having really a, a long enough runway, overextending yourself to get open, things yeah. like this that yeah. we just don't talk about in the industry. What's going through your mind as I say that? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's you know, it's certainly uh, you know fun to paint the picture of nostalgia as a wonderful, positive thing, but you know, it it went the way of so many other incredible places around the country and beyond. Like you I'm, know? Sh- I'm sure my listeners, wait, so this place was open for three years? It was, it well, was that good? Yeah, I mean, that's, a, yeah, you're right, you know, and and, and uh, that that is that is the truth of it, you know, and I, I'm sure that it's difficult for Tim to, to talk through and talk about. And, uh, and he was very humble and very yeah. open and vulnerable of talking about yeah, it. Yeah, you know, and, and, and at my, you know, where I'm at in, in relationship to Mr. Paul's Supper Club and to Earl Giles, I am much more in the position of, of understanding all of that than I did in 2006 as a bartender, you know, and then, you know, eventually bar manager there, you know, I was certainly removed from that side of everything. And so, you know, only really hearing about the demise and the potential demise and the decay and then, you know, the selling of the business to, uh, you know, all of that stuff that kind of happened at the end there. And then another restaurant group took it over and I stayed on. So I I was there through that transition and then worked for um, this other restaurant company called the Theros Group uh, here in town that I I think is no longer in business. They they had a few other restaurants, but they had purchased the, the business outright and um you know tommy worked there during that transition as well and through all of that um and uh yeah you know that that was a very hard piece of that story because you know you talk about what was so special about that place 
was the soul, was the people, was the feeling, was the was the energy, because even with like the same building and the same menu, but no longer Tim and no longer that structure, uh, these guys came in and they're like, we're going to capitalize on what you guys did. And they couldn't do it. Right. It felt different. Behind every great restaurant is a great person or people. Yeah. Um, and um, really, I mean, that's, again, that's, I think that's why I put a lot of focus on, and this is a lesson that I learned after maybe a yeah. hundred episodes yeah. of like, I'm going to stop focusing on the restaurants. If you listen to episodes like one through 60 of Restaurant Unstoppable, I do not recommend you do that. For the record, <laughs> it was bad. But like, I'm focusing on the restaurant. Like, tell me about your restaurant, your restaurant, your restaurant. Yeah. Then I started to realize that these restaurants are just a manifestation, manifestation yeah. of people behind yeah. them, and really focus on the people and understand what's going on yeah. in those people's minds and what they know. And that's where the, the secret sauce. Is. I also think that there is. I, I I would like to think, and I think Tim did this in a few other projects of his. He had opened this place that was. I forget the name of it, but you know he had he had done it after like a, another restaurant had closed. He took over the lease and was like, "Listen, we're going to roll this for three months. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't." And like that, and now, nowadays, every pop ups all over and you know micro ideas and th- you know planning ahead to launch something that eventually ends doesn't mean failure. It's when you expect it to live forever and it doesn't is more of a failure, you know, and a failure at the end doesn't mean a failure of the whole. And again, like when you go back in the, in the way of nostalgia, like the town talk does have this, you know, beautiful spark in a lot of people's, you know, memory and in, in their career. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it, it is interesting for you to, to talk about it that way because for me it's the first time I think in a long time that I've even thought about the end of that what I think about is the heyday of it right. you know right. which was which was incredible but right. you know it ending and it being time for me to move on was what then allowed me to start Bitter Cube you know so yeah. I was actively after Tim left and the Theris group took over I was not happy in that position you know um, why weren't you because I felt I felt a couple things, you know, one, I felt like I kind of was like left behind a little bit, like Tim had went and opened up the strip club and he would hate that I said this, but he had left and opened up the strip club meat and fish and I was left to stay at town talk and run that. And then the transition happened and I wasn't really part of any of that. And just, you know, I, I'm an emotional human and that's how it felt. Is that how it, is that accurate? No, no, it's not, it's business. And here's yeah. your job. You have a job here. Yeah. <laughs> You're yeah. the bar manager here. Stay here and do that. But for some reason, I think in my head, I thought that I was going to go on this journey with Tim in his, you know, career as he grew, I would grow with him. Um, and that didn't happen. And, and, and that's okay. It's definitely okay now, you know, when I think about the, the history of it, but it was hard for me for a while. But then I also wasn't happy there because I felt constricted. I felt that it, the, the walls had closed in on me a little bit, which is, um, you know, for, for, I guess for three years, it felt like every night was a party and it was, and which also probably was a reflection on the business side of the, the thing. And then that changed. And now it was this other restaurant group that has a little bit more of a corporate structure and a little bit more structure altogether. And we're going to try to do the same thing with that structure. And they were very accommodating to me even. And I still wasn't happy. I think you can have the best of both worlds. Of course you can. For sure. At 42 now, I definitely yeah. know that. You, you can't have it without structure. Right. Uh, but I feel like to, to our point is that a lot of what the soul was got pulled out when mm-hmm. Tim left. So yeah. the structure came in and the soul wasn't there. Yeah. So, but if, if, if Tim had the that structure and those lessons on like the, the more disciplined side of the business, yeah. 
imagine what that place could and, become. And I don't, I don't want to fast forward all the way, but when we opened up Mr. Paul's Supper Club, Tim, you know, it, you know, uh, sorry, Tommy and I would always talk about. You know, I feel like we've been chasing the dragon of town talk for this whole time. Like I have been trying to recreate how it felt to be there all over and over and over again. And, and Mr. Paul's was the first time that it really felt that way. And what Mr. Paul's has is structure, not EOS. We got to get Tommy involved in that, but they do have such a better handle on the finance side of the business, and it's all open right. and everybody's involved in it on a weekly basis we're planning and preparing and that is what allows you to have that 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 creative control and freedom and i think that mr paul's is going to be an institution because of it we're going to make it through that this was uh we're talking back 2008 2009 almost what 16 years ago yeah so you guys had 16 years to put your big boy operating pants on yep. where you still have who you are your soul's yep. there but through trial and error, you've learned over time. And yep. now you're taking these lessons. Also, the industry has evolved where now there's inf- there's access to this information. Mm-hmm. Whereas before, I think you would have needed like a few tens of thousands of dollars to go hire a consultant that, you know, the information was guarded, I feel like, 20 years ago. Is that an extreme to say? Maybe, yeah. I mean, I guess I just also wasn't ever in a position to have more of my eyes on that side of the yeah. stuff. You know, and so I left Town Talk as the bar manager in 2009. 2009. Yeah. Um, at this time, I also had, you know, for a couple of years, had been competing in this Bombay Sapphire competition called the Most Imaginative Bartender, and I had lost two years in Minnesota. And then on my third try, I won, nice. and this is in 2009. And then I took third place in the country. Oh shit! And this is right when I was moving to Milwaukee. So I had been putting together a business plan for a bar called Distill, and it was the name of the bar concept I had created. And I was shopping it around, or trying to shop it around again, like. Ironically, you know, looking back 16, 17 years ago, shopping around and what I had as a business plan versus what a real business plan is, is, you know, very, very vast difference there. But I had this idea that I wanted to bring to life and a friend of mine was running some bars in Milwaukee and he had presented this idea to his investor and the guy really liked the idea and he said, you know, bring, bring Nick down, uh, let's meet him. Uh, and then he flew up and saw me at town talk and, it was very much in this, you know, kind of turmoily spot where, you know, I was going through divorce. I or had gone through divorce. The restaurant at Town Talk was not where I wanted to be. I was I felt like I'd kind of hit my ceiling in Minneapolis um, in a way and was ready to, 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 to branch out. And so uh, I'm packed up and moved to Milwaukee without any agreement, any contract, nothing. It was like, all right, yeah, we're going to open up this place. He's got these other bars. I'm going to help manage these bars while we open up this bar called Distill, and uh, that'll be it. And that, what, what the original plan was, I was going to move to Milwaukee for a year, open this bar, and then we we're going to open a second location back in Minneapolis. So like, it was like, I'm going to go away for a little bit. I'm going to come back as a restaurateur and open up another bar. And, make sure I yeah. understand. You were going to go partner with this gentleman. The, the benefit was he was going to get you under his umbrella to mm-hmm. help fine-tune his bar programs and in exchange he was going to help you develop your own concept yep. which you were going to scale in milwaukee and also bring and then back come to back to minneapolis okay. yeah because at this time i have a two-year-old son three-year-old son and so as a recently divorced parent the vision was i can make this work i'm going to be in milwaukee i'm going to reside in milwaukee but i'm going to come back every other week is that like a four-hour drive six, six hour drive? 
six. I can do it with my eyes closed. Uh, Especially if you have a Tesla. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, six hours. And so every other week I would travel back and forth and I would pick up Owen and we would spend three, four days at my, at my grandparents' house in Faribault or wherever we could kind of make it work. And I did that for like three years. Uh, so one wow. year turned into three. But so uh, very quickly this, this you know, non-negotiated, non-actual business agreement turned sour very quickly, like in a few months. Um, at this time, I was also, you know, befriending um, a, a gentleman named Ira Koplowitz, who uh, was the bar manager at the Violet Hour. And, and we had met here at the Town Talk Diner. He, he at the time was dating a, a, a lady from, from Minneapolis. And so he would come up uh, in this market and uh, he would visit at the Town Talk. And that's where I met him. And so, so we kind of became fast friends. And uh, as uh, I had moved to Milwaukee, this guy had met Ira because we went on a trip to Chicago and Ira took us all around town. And then this, this investor was like, well, I want this guy to come up and help us open this bar as well. And so then Ira did the same thing. Ira left the Violet Hour as the bar manager and moved to Milwaukee. And our plan was we were going to open this bar together called Distill and then, uh, you know, go, go on from there and, and see what happens. I am curious. You said something. You felt like you hit your ceiling in Minneapolis. Yeah. Was there a higher ceiling in Milwaukee? Uh, well, as an owner, yeah. Like okay. to me, the, the path was there's an ownership opportunity here. So I could move to Milwaukee as, as a beverage director of, of four bars that are already in existence. We were, I was going to start working at one, but the idea was to be involved in all of them. So was it more about just getting out from underneath the umbrella of the, cor- the current organization you're with to have a higher ceiling? Or was it so much, it wasn't so much um, Milwaukee, or sorry, Minneapolis didn't have the potential is just like you needed to find a different group maybe yeah different market. i think I'm, i think ceiling in terms of like what i was doing at town talk diner like i was the bar manager at town talk diner like what was my next step gonna be yeah there's no room for growth yeah and and then also i felt i think especially like with with the divorce and everything too i was definitely looking for like yeah adventure and what's the next thing and, and i don't think that you know you have the original thought of like i want to do something new I don't. I, I didn't predict that that meant I was moving to Milwaukee. You know, yeah. like it's like I knew that something had to change, and I wanted change. So the ceiling was relative to your position with the organization, not yeah. the city. Definitely not the city. Got no, it. no, got it. No, uh, cool. So um, the other thing I want to pull back layers on is the, um, you said that the the agreement turned sour. It did, yeah. Um, and that's weird. And I always try to give my my guests. A heads up. I talk about weird shit in this podcast. I don't think I told you about that before getting in, but I feel like you kind of have, as a listener, you listen to a couple episodes, you know I talk about the weird shit. Um, and the weird shit is, is partnerships and money. Yep. Because we don't talk about that stuff. Because yeah. it's weird. We're not, it's, it's, it's socially awkward. You don't do it. But I'm taking one for the team. I, I like to go there because mm-hmm. there's lessons here. So what, hindsight being 2020, what would you have done differently in go, getting involved into this relationship to have not to prevent it from going sour? I guess. I think, in hindsight, I wouldn't. I, do, I don't. I wouldn't want to change anything because the way that everything worked out is what got me to where we are today. You know, like I, I, I do look at history that way, where you know, yes, different decisions could have been made, but those would also have created a different path, and so I, I think. Struggling with regret is a thing that I tried, you know, to, you have to process and you process it by saying like, it is what it is. And and then it all worked out, you know, but, um, you know, I think that, uh, 
ha- not having any sort of agreement was the first like business yeah. ignorance, you know, like, uh, you know, hey, do you want to come down and work at this bar and we're going to do X, Y, and Z? And I was like, sure. Can you help me get down there? Can you cover some moving expenses? Yeah, we'll cover some moving expenses. That was enough for me to be like, well, this is the legit thing. Right. This is worth putting all they're, my chips They're in. putting money up. But yeah, that yeah. money relative to them, what's a few thousand dollars, Nothing. right? Yeah. But in terms of a business agreement, uh, you know, like get into like knowing what you know now, and not to say that you have any regrets, but for the the person listening to this, yeah, who was you? I would have never done. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So if 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 forty two year old Nick had someone be like, "Hey, do you want to come and open a bar with me in any whatever city?" I wouldn't just be like, "Yeah." I mean, it, it wasn't like you know, I'm just like blind, <laughs> you know, like like blindly going down, you know. But but it wasn't concrete enough and protected. We weren't protected. What protection would you need? I think the protection of like what the agreement looks like. I mean, basically for me, I feel, I mean, this bar opened still. There's a bar in Milwaukee called Distill and it, and it, I wouldn't say that it is a, a replication of what my original vision was, but the name is, and the original idea was, and it still opened under this person's, you know, business, uh, 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 you know, list of businesses. Uh, and we weren't involved in it. And that, that's a so hard it was thing. Your creative, it was your creative intelligence, yeah. essentially your yeah. um, intellectual property yeah. in, in essence. Um, you did the, the heavy lifting of actually like building the systems, building the, out the restaurant. Or it hadn't the- even gotten that far. Yeah. So, so Ira and I, so Ira moved up in, I think like October of 2009. And by, November, the first week of November that year, we were no longer part of that team. Um, and, and really, I think Ira solidified the weird, like, like it was weird. <laughs> and, and I think like you're, you're trying to get away from around all the weirdness. You're like, yeah, all right, this guy's kind of weird or this doesn't seem right. But the eye on the prize is we're opening this bar, right? And then I think, you know, what, what, what the big turn was we were in a business meeting talking about cost and numbers and what our vision was for the menu. And this investor said, you know, we're not going to make money on your fancy cocktails. You don't plan on having buckets of beer? Yeah, we got stuck on like buckets of beer. And we're like, what? And he's like, you need to have buckets of beer. And we're like, what? And like, we're opening a cocktail bar. And he goes, we make money on buckets of beer. We're not going to make money on your silly craft cocktails. What year was this? This is 2009. Okay, so still, that wasn't in Milwaukee. Into 2010? In the Midwest, that was still very new, right? Yeah. So Violet Hour is pretty new still, and, and like the world of cocktails is not where it is today. So this is still, I think, at the, at the pretty near beginning of the cocktail movement that we're in now. So that, that, that meeting was the first kind of like realization, like something's up, this doesn't seem right. And then a mismatch in vision. Yeah. And so then we, we pulled out after, after a few more weeks of it, knowing that it wasn't going to be what we wanted it to be. And when we felt that creative uh, opportunity get taken away, we, we, we were done. This is why it's so important to sit down and have sessions. And it sounds so cheesy. Vision. Let's sit down and just dream mm-hmm. together. Let's sit yeah. around a table and say, what's the future going to look like? Yeah. What's the work we're doing? What are people saying about us? How are we making them feel? How are they making us feel? How much money are we making? Where's that money coming from? Like, and literally paint out the picture of the future of your business. And the cool thing is you can have AI voice translator documenting this whole thing as you go. And you can go through that and like literally distill a vision that you all can sign off on this is where we're going yeah because you you, it's a great idea you know it's it's stupid (laughs) it's just like but at the same time it's like you you can solve so many problems by just making sure we're all going to the same place in the future i know you're an eos guy and i'm sure that will come out but like they bake that stuff into the vto 
the the vision traction organizer, right? Yep, like yep. this stuff is important. It's in there for a reason. Yeah. So, um, what was next for you in your evolution after Distill? So we left Distill uh, unemployed in Milwaukee in a new city that we had only been in for Ira like a month for me, like three months, um, and we were kind of that like ground zero, the rock bottom, whatever you want to call it, and like. You know, I mean, even the discussions of like, you know, can we return back to our respectful cities and get our jobs back? And we decided not to do that. We said, let's take these next couple months, uh, the end of this year, and work on building something together. And so at, at Town Talk Diner, I had already been, you know, making, uh, you know, everything. You know, in, in 2006, the access to all of this crazy cocktail ingredients that are now available everywhere was not available yet, right? Like you couldn't even find orange bitters. And so right. as somebody who started, you know, getting into classic cocktails and history and trying to replicate these things, you'd look for stuff that you just didn't have access to, you know? Who was like, your inspiration? Was it DeGrasse by any chance? Was he one of those ones? De- DeGrasse, is that the name? Oh, DeGrasse. Uh, New York? Uh, Dale DeGroff. Dale, Dale DeGroff. DeGroff. Thank you. Yeah, no, much. Art of the Cocktail was my first book, yeah. you know, and, and he's such an incredible human. He's impacted so many people in this this field. Uh, he's a wonderful, wonderful person. I want to so. get him on my show. You I, should, man. I think I'm like one point removed from him. Yeah. I okay. Gotta, I got to lock that down. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. His son, I could definitely connect you with. with I, I mean, I think I could probably connect you with them, but okay. I mean, other people that you've had we'll uh, on, on, yeah, other people you've had probably have a better, you know, closer relationship. But uh, yeah, wonderful person, and uh, that was definitely one of the first cocktail books that I purchased, and then imbibed by David Wondrich, and that was like the when you started to understand the history of the cocktail world and trying to replicate stuff that Jerry Thomas did in the 1800s is crazy. So 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 now we're making all this stuff in house, including bitters. I was at the Violet Hour, which is you know this incredible institution of classic cocktails and it goes all the way to the lineage of milk and honey and Sasha Petrosky and in this very uh, important way to look at the world of cocktails and so here you have Ira working on you know history and all of these crazy liqueurs and spirits and these old cocktails and perfecting them for the modern palate and then you have me at Town Talk kind of making all of this stuff in-house and it's kind of laboratory culinary like and you, you know, when when I first met him, you know, he it's kind of a funny story. So, you know, there's a guy, Toby Maloney. Have you heard of Toby Maloney? He's a, a cocktail guy. He worked at Milk and Honey. He opened up the Violet Hours. James Beard haven't uh, heard of nominated him. Well, and, and have. Uh, 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 he's an author. Uh, anyway, so so he was opening a bar in Minneapolis called the Brad Street. And so it was this big kind of like, hey, do you guys know this guy's coming up to town and he's going to open up a spot and he's going to take all of our business. And so we heard that this guy was going around town, stopping at all the good cocktail bars. And so we should be on the lookout. And so, you know, we were kind of on guard at Town Talk, you know, making sure that we're ready for this out of towner who thinks he knows what he's doing. And so these these girls come in one night and they're taking photos of the menu, which again, 2007, 2008, that wasn't as normal as it is. And so we're like, who are these people? And they're like, oh, we have a friend coming in from out of town. We're like, oh, from where? They go like, oh, from Chicago. And so we're like, oh, this is this guy. The alarms start going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then Ira finally, Ira shows up with his girlfriend at the time and, and uh, uh, 
we think he's Toby Maloney. He's not, <laughs> but we're kind of a dick to the guy, you know? And like, I don't know if he even noticed, but we were like, kind of just like being standoffish or whatever. But anyway, we, we end up hitting it off and it's not until like, I think a, an hour later. So that we realize it's not, not the guy that we thought it was or something. But anyway, long story short, we became fast friends and that's how we, we, we kind of connected all of this. So, so we started bitter cube, uh, in Milwaukee after leaving distill. That was the, the, the next kind of jump. And what, there. what was bitter cube? Bitter Cube started as a bitters company. So Ira was making bitters at the Violet Hour. I was making bitters at Town Talk, and we started to share those things. And again, like bitters at this point was, you know, was not as accessible as it is today. It wasn't a saturated sector of the market. Were other people doing it? Sure. But we, you know, I personally wasn't smart enough to be like, well, I should check out and see if there are comp- competitors, you know, just like we're going to do this thing. And we did it. Um, we had, I think we really didn't, we didn't even know like Bitterman's. I didn't know about Bitterman's until after we were already making Bitter Cube, for example. You so, know, so that's another company. That yeah, was another Bitters company. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. And now there's just it's a it's a pretty saturated market for a yeah, product that you use by the Dash. Yeah, it wasn't that long ago, but it was like a renaissance in the cocktail. World. Yeah, yeah. And I like think we were kind of on the the, the, the beginning parts yeah. of that, you know. And so we launched Bitter Cube in 2009. It's still a, a viable business today. Ira runs that now. Uh, on I actually, own. think I have some stills of your bitters from last night. Because I was, to, were those the ones that you were using your own bitters? Uh, bitter cube, yeah, still prominently placed everywhere. Yeah, so there will be B roll of your bitters in the oh, frame right, right, right now. Yeah, yeah, uh, and, and technically not mine anymore. I did okay. sell my, my half nice. of the uh, nice. uh, company to Ira during the pandemic. We split up the business. Let's tap the brakes real quick. Get big picture. Zoom up to thirty thousand feet. Not get into any detail. Kind of from to this point of starting Bitter Cube in two thousand. Still, two, this all happened two thousand nine. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, you, you, I see that you go from Bitter Cube. You had Bitter Cube. You were also doing Bombay uh, yeah. Sapphire. So after after taking third place in the country, they started this program of like regional ambassadors. So it was normally like the the first person, like if you were number one, a winner of this competition, you were then kind of their like ambassador That's for probably the how year. They were trying to find their influencers, yeah, their, yeah, their mavens to promote their goods. Yeah. So I didn't win it, but I think I was. I you know, you know charismatic enough and charmed the right people that they were like, let's have Nick involved in this as well. And so they took the top three, uh, maybe top four people to Miami and we started doing some training and then it kind of just grew from there. Their national ambassador, Gary Hayward and I became really good friends and he, he was a big champion of mine and, and wanted to take me along for this, this ride. And so basically for 10 years, I was part of this, you know, ambassador team. Um, primarily what I did was, judged the most imaginative cocktail competition. So I traveled around North America uh, judging uh, uh, you know, drinks. It was the best thing. I got paid to eat, drink, and judge people, my three favorite things. And uh, yeah, I, I, it was a real great trip. I have a similar trip. lifestyle. But yeah. I don't feel like I'm judging people. I like oh, you are. I'm, everyone you does are. it. Yeah. But I, I think, <laughs> um, I mean, it is a great lifestyle. You're yeah, it was fun. Right. It was fun. Um, yeah. after being so close to the award culture, what are your perspectives on that. Oh god. Uh you know, I um I agree with a lot of, you know, the stuff that I've heard on just a few of your podcasts so far is is, you know, the the common thread of their out of control um, you know, I think from the bartender side, you're not, you know, on the culinary side you're talking about James Beard and and the Michelin, right? And then on the culin- on the bar side, it's way more saturated. Like every brand wants to do a bar competition. Like the big meme joke right now is Bar Boss, right? Like the uh, uh, Dos Hombres uh, Mezcal guys, the okay. Breaking Bad guys are doing a Bar Boss competition, win $10,000 
to be called the next bar boss or something like that. So there's a lot of jokes about that. But I do think that there has come a time where there's like bar uh, competition fatigue where like you can't really get the best. Uh, wow, look at that. Thank you. Up. I'm going to taste this. All right. What do we Do you know what it is? Mm-mm. Looks like there's no, some, it's delicious. Is that dried up pineapple? Yeah, we make um, it's called disco citrus. I so we say dehumidified. We de uh, we dehydrate uh, fruit and dust them in edible metals. So oh. yeah, so you can like gold dusted lemons and oranges, and we also Hold like that up for the camera. We can we, zoom in. Oh on yeah, it. put it straight in front between your face and the camera. Yeah, we'll yeah. zoom in on and that. And it's camera. got some uh, silver uh, edible gold. If on you it. have not subscribed to our YouTube channel yet, now is the time to head to youtube.com slash restaurant unstoppable. Oh. Please subscribe. So while Plug building Bitter Cube, I also <laughs> was building Bombay Sapphire. Or not building Bombay Sapphire. I was working on Bombay Sapphire. And uh, it was an incredible opportunity because it took me all over the country, all into Canada. I, I had all of Canada. So I, I got to go to Montreal, Toronto, uh, 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 and uh, Vancouver, yeah. uh, Calgary, over and over and over every every couple months. I'm not ready to get yeah. off the award culture yet because I want to reciprocate mm. from what you shared. <laughs> so, I mean... I. I, I don't want to be naive. I recognize that it is a win-win. Uh, these companies that are out there that generate these award programs are making money off of the marketing side of things. And it's great for restaurants because they're getting – and people because they get these titles. and these, It's a way to build your resume and to drive traffic to your business. I just think that we could be a, a little bit better about not being naive to the point that – I don't – at the end of the day, who's really winning? Is it the award comp- company that gives the awards? Or is it the people at the end? Yeah. And, like, and I think that there, there is a win-win, but I think the balance could be a little bit better. And I think we could be a little bit better from your perspective as a young guy. Like You're like, ah, I can get a title. This makes me feel seen. And I yeah, feel it was good a about game changer. this. And it, it did, I'm sure, help you climb the ladder. A hundred percent. That's the thing. Like, yeah. like competing. But again, like I also... Like there are people that do like they compete in everything. Like you're competing in everything until one of them pops, right? I got lucky. I you know I did this three times locally, won the third, then took third nationally, and then got a gig. Yeah, like that trajectory is is pretty lucky. I think. Yeah, that's not you know. So the, I, like again, I don't want to be naive. I do see the win win, and I don't think it's completely evil. But I think that these companies could be a little bit more. Uh, like at the same time, they're building. A, an army of people to go out and promote their brands, so they have their ulterior motives. Yep, yep. They're they're going to find, try to find. Hey, we're gonna give you this award, and yep. hey, we want to select you, and hey, go around and promote our yep. products. You know, so it's like, yep. just just be open minded. That like, yes, they are providing opportunity for you, but there is an ulterior, invisible hand there, motive. Yeah. Of like, there's something in it for us too, and I think we could be better about being aware of the manipulation from some of these companies. 100. percent I mean, it is the marketing team yeah. of any spirit company that is facilitating there's these competitions. <laughs> the game is sales. Yeah. You know, the yeah. game is sales, and you know, again, like the the benefit is, you know, exposure and travel and connection. I think to me, like. The, what is the most valuable thing that I took from that decade long work with Bombay is that I know. You know, again, pre-pandemic, I would say I knew nearly everybody doing good work in the beverage world in North America. Yeah, you could pick a city, and I could be like, "Here are my top five places, top five people," and I loved that. You yeah, know? yeah. It's a, it's There's not the same now, there. but There's yeah, benefits yeah. there. And um, I just think that uh, I think to come full circle and to really the the read between the lines of what I'm trying to communicate is that 
my biggest fear is that people are going to see award culture and think that the ob- the objective of this industry is to be the best. And that's what award culture promotes is like the goal is to win. Yeah. And that's just not the goal of hospitality. It's about making sure everybody else wins. And I think that you need to not lose sight of that because I think that's what makes the industry better for everybody. Yeah. It's not about being the best. It's about creating security for everybody. The goal of hospitality is hospitality. I think that we talk more about that today in our training programming than ever where we say like the art of the cocktail is is a tool it's it's part of your magic act to get people to come in and experience hospitality and and like we try to constantly re refocus not only in the restaurant but company-wide at Earl Giles like you know our production team is is part of a hospitality company and we yeah. get them to think about every aspect of our business through the lens of hospitality we are a service. We provide a service. We make products, but what we really are providing is hospitality to consumers, to bars and restaurants and hotels throughout North America. That is what we're trying to really achieve here. Yeah. So back to your story, your timeline. How are you evolving as a professional? If the mission statement is to inspire the industry, how are you evolving and inspiring during this time? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, Bitter Cube opened, you know, so, so uh, in the 11 years that I was working uh, and growing Bitter Cube, we opened like I think fifty-five different bars and restaurants in the country. Wow. Trained hundreds and hundreds of bartenders. Uh, developed a platform called the Seven Pillars of Classic Cocktails, which is very much inspired from the lineage of Milk and Honey all the way to the Violet Hour, and, and then to, to Ira and I. I mean, uh, I think a lot of people in the consulting world would connect their dots kind of to those similar people. Um, and so, our, our training platform and menu development. Uh, was a big part of our business. And so I think what I was doing in, in learning and growing in that, that, that decade plus of Bitter Cube was you know, learning how to go from being a bartender and a person with an idea to somebody who was you know, running into developing a business. And, and Ira and I, as partners, are very different. I think we worked really well together in that respect um, because he, we, we, we were very good at different parts of the business and good at some of them together. Um, and so for, for quite some time in that business, it was more like I was running the consulting side of the business and he was running the bitters manufacturing side of the business. I think um, now yeah. is a good time to take a break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back. I just realized we're 45 minutes into the sucker. We haven't taken a break yet. I'm into it, dude. All right. If you're tired of the other tater, you ought to try tater cakes because it's time to serve the tater your guests deserve. Tater cakes are shredded potatoes mixed with delicious flavors. All the best parts of a baked potato in the perfect handheld package. From the freezer to the fryer to your guests, tater cakes comes in a variety of flavors, including bacon, cheddar, chive, buffalo chicken, bacon, jalapeno, and more. And I got to hone in a little bit deeper here on this deliciousness. Bacon, cheddar, chive features creamy cheddar cheese, big bacon bites, sour cream and a hint of chives and of course crispy crunchy potatoes Mm, sign me up for that you can serve them in a variety of different ways and in many different applications great for dining delivery and to go with all the uncertainties in the world today we should be certain that our food always has great flavor and tater cakes provides that comfort in every bite request samples at taterkegs.com that's t-a-t-e-r-k-e-g-s.com taterkegs.com 
Most business problems are people problems, people not understanding each other, and the predictive index helps to increase that understanding between others. Hi, I'm Ed Doherty. I am the founder of One Degree Coaching here in Philadelphia. Predictive Index is a talent optimization platform, been around for over 55 years. It helps leaders to build happier, high performing teams. My name is Eric Cacciatore. I'm the founder and host of Restaurant Unstoppable Podcast. As somebody who's gone through the PI process, I can tell you that knowing who you are, knowing who your team is, can help you be far more intentional than you've ever been with your business. If you want to learn more about PI and get to work with Ed, head to Restaurant unstoppable.com slash try PI. If you click the link, sign up for PI, you can create a provisional account. I will set up an opportunity to talk to you directly and read your results and give you a little tour of the platform. See if it works for you. Restaurantunstoppable.com slash try PI. I think we're officially back. All right, let's do it. We're back. Um, I think we'll roll in with that, that drink being passed to me and uh, I am, I am having lunch and Enjoying a vibration. Salad vibration. course number two, the yeah. carrot drink, uh, the rabbit kick. Ooh. So carrot, uh, pineapple. You just give me a whole new reason to get into juicing. Yeah. <laughs> For drinks. When I'm in the RV, the plan is to get a juicer. Yeah. I didn't even think about putting like, it What's your too. best thing to do with carrot juice? Uh, vodka? You know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. What's the foundation? Yeah. Um, anyway. Um, so where we left off, you're talking about you and Ira and uh, how you became good business partners and you balanced each other and you became collectively good. Is that? I think so. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I would like to think that that is his version of that history with with us as well. You know, it was 11 years of 50-50 partners with somebody that, you know, we butted heads uh, often, but I think we also recovered from that headbutting and the end result was often like the right thing for our business. Yeah, you said you're also starting to develop your business chops around this time. You're no longer a naive boy who just wants to open your bar. You actually want to make money while doing it. Well, that was the thing too is like, so, you know, the original thing that brought us to Milwaukee was this idea of opening this one location and then maybe a second location in Minneapolis, and then who knows, right? And what BitterCube ended up being was not only this bitters company, because like, how do you, how are we going to make money on? Like, yes, we knew that we wanted to make these bitters formulas that we had started to develop together, but how are we going to live on this? And so the consulting side of the business was yes. always the the piece. It was let's start a company that manufactures bar goods, but also teaches upsells the goods to the, yep. the clients yep, that's it yeah, i thought i was wondering where this was going i thought that might have been it so you're going you, you have these chops you, you won these awards you clearly know how to develop a bar program you're contracting yourself to other restaurant owners and bar owners across the country and saying this is how you use uh old-fashioned like this is how you do it here are the tools yeah we talk about the seven pillars of classic cocktails that's kind of what was our thing where we said listen you know, there's basically these seven formulas here, and, and let's talk about them and break them down and talk about flavor. And then we develop a menu. That menu is, you know, thematic based on the, the restaurant concept. But all these drinks still tie back to these historical components. So if I can teach somebody these very basic cocktails, how to talk about them, teach a team how to taste together and have collective palate, then I can implement these new, more unique flavors and, and more unique spins on these classics. But our thing was always, you know, all drinks are, every drink has been made in some way. There's nothing new under the sun. Like, if you don't know the history of the cocktail, you're missing a piece of that cocktail. And so 
I might make a, an old fashioned or a Negroni that has, you know, a Thai tea in it. I might make a Thai tea Negroni, but like it's still a Negroni. I still need to know the history of the Negroni or understand the build of the Negroni in order to do that. And, and, and I took a lot of that from the, like, you know, with judging the cocktail competition, you know, like if I'm traveling and somebody's making drinks, like what I would generally expect from that bartender is to be able to tie it all back, right? It's not a new invention. And I think that when we think about the cocktail world and some of the negative things in the cocktail, craft cocktail scene, like, you know, these bartenders are arrogant, the drinks take forever, they don't really seem to care about hospitality, it's more about the liquid and their knowledge of this thing, what, how, ego. Ego. Awards. Yeah. <laughs> how we try to remove that is yeah. by education. Like yes. what, we, what we were seeing in the markets all over was a lack of knowledge made you more arrogant. A lack of knowing what you were doing and the history of it made you seem Pay more... homage to the roots. Yeah. So, that, you know, if you, if you hand me a drink and you're like, you know, I just something I've been working on and whipped up, but I call it Vanilla Sky. It's vanilla vodka and, and lavender syrup and lime juice. I'm like, no, that's a fucking gimlet, man. And it's a gimlet with vanilla flavor, but it's a gimlet. And yeah. if you don't know that... It's, know, it's really yeah. cool, like learning about the history of alcohol in like the, like the barmen of the, the the 19th century. Like, dude, those people were first and foremost. It, it was about just the the hospitality and the creating the experience, and it was ev- about everybody else winning, not me and my ego being seen as the best. Yeah, and that's what made them the best. Yeah, and I think I you know I do think that there was ego there you know if you think goes omnipresent i get sure and i only say this because if you think about like the old-fashioned just for a quick history side sidetrack here so the old-fashioned was originally called the cocktail and then it became the old-fashioned because you have these old timers going into bars being like i don't want any of this fancy mixology that you guys are cooking up back there just make me a whiskey in the old-fashioned way and that's the, you know, let's not let the, the, the truth get in the way of a good story, but that's the story that we tell about the old fashioned. So if you think about like that nomenclature, and if a, like a, a whole country's nomenclature changes from the word cocktail to old fashioned, because people were like, I don't want any of these fancy cocktails, just make me a whiskey in the old fashioned way. To me, that makes me think that some of those bartenders were probably pretty arrogant yeah, with their sangri and their julep and their sling and it's their It's all tie. relative, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I get that. <laughs> but you bring up a really important thing, and I think that the, the significance of education is underplayed in, in creating the experience. Because when you can educate people on the thing that they're experiencing, that ties, that knowledge doesn't go away that's there that's in the head and they're tying that knowledge to the experience they have at yep. your pay it forward bar. i mean that is you know the the problem of i think the work that you do sometimes and not the problem but you know you're you're either training your replacement or you're training the employment of another restaurant you know like in a world of consulting in a in a a business model where we were opening bars all over locally tons of stuff locally um and, and beyond you know, I'm training people to now become either managers in those places or they get hired by other people. Like we, you know, uh, especially, you know, when you go to a, a market and you're training the same store, different bartenders over and over, uh, that starts to feel like you're like, man, I'm just training the whole market here, yeah. these, these basic cocktail things. But I mean, the, the, the business lessons I want to pull from this one, I think I want to unpackage your business model as a consultant, also upselling and creating co- almost like continuity in your business where like you're tr- you have the upfront initial you know cash flow you're getting from being the consultant but then once you you move away from that relationship they are now baking 
your bitters into their their uh, ordering. Like yeah. They're, like they're, they, you're like and, you're adding another channel for. And it. what a silly thing to sell, right? So bitters are used by the milliliter. So here we are, super excited about the smallest component you can think of and really giving it our all, which is awesome. We make what we think are the best bitters, and they're really important. And we, we didn't think bitters were important because we made them. They're really important backbone of cocktails. But at the same time, the model of what where we came, which was like, wow, what if we could control the narrative for bars and restaurants and hotels throughout the country and make this easier to do? Can we, can we create... Uh, more products that are that create a more holistic approach to that vision, and so now you fast forward, and and where, what we've done at Earl Giles is really taken that original idea of we want to consult and get our bitters in, into your menu. Now it's everything, every we we make every component of a cocktail. So like you know we produce elixirs and citrates and syrups, and we are now the prep kitchen yeah. for, for not only our consulting clients but for thousands of bars and restaurants you know throughout North America. And you started. Off air, you started talking about Earl Giles, and I was like, "What exactly is this? A distillery? Are you making mm-hmm. like, w- yeah? You're like, a, like, but it sounds like you're a holistic. Like, you're not just selling the the booze that goes in the drink, but you're selling the the garnishes, garnishes, the- mixers, everything. Yeah, everything yeah. that we can that we can. Yeah. Earl, so Earl Giles is seven years old. Uh, it started by uh, Jesse Held and Jeff Urkla, two colleagues of mine at the time that that had you know again Jesse worked at Town Talk Diner. We've known each other for a long time. They both worked uh, with me at a place called Eat Street Social that we opened in 2012. Uh, and Ira, Ira and I opened as as the bar consultants, and then they left a year later to start. Well, technically nine months later, they told me they'd give me a year. They left nine months later and started a Jester Concepts. So they were now the bar team for Parlor Bar, which is a, a still a really great, well established cocktail bar here. And they were operating four different restaurants under this Jester Concept, and they were producing the products for all four stores in one commissary, basically. So they were kind of having this idea happen internally in their own business as well while bitter cube was starting to create things like elixirs and citrates and trying to create shelf stable products that we could ship across the country to our consulting Who were those two other partners again i was yeah, sure. yeah jeff urkla and jesse held so jeff and jesse yeah and their middle names are earl and Did giles I, meet, I met some of them just you just now. met jesse yeah he yeah. just dropped you off that right. salad in the glass also he is Earl, or he is uh he's earl right yeah jesse earl giles okay got it so no, like, no, Jesse, Jesse Earl held, and then Jeffrey Giles okay, Urkla. That's right. Yeah, I yeah. was like, I know there's one, yeah. but it's not their first name. Yeah, there's both their middle there's names. There's a lot of names floating it's, around. It is. Right yeah, yeah. It's confusing. <laughs> but so, but, but this, here, this goes all the way back to 2012? Yeah, yeah. Wow. So 2013, I think they started seven, seven years ago or so. So, so what, what was their focus? That, that's what I wanted. Sorry. Yeah. What was their focus? So they were bartenders that let that we we were all working together at a restaurant and then they quit and moved to Jester. It was a restaurant restaurant group here. Yeah. So they were managing a bar called Parlor Bar and then eventually three other bars. And they were what Jeff Urkla was doing for these bars was making the he was the prep guy. So okay. he was making basically out of a commissary kitchen all of the mixes for these menus so for mixes all these bars. And garnishes? Yeah, for the, okay. I think just syrups probably for and the most part at that point. And I were, were focused on the bitters. And we were making bitters and so we you know we had more forces. of a national approach to okay. our business and they were very much focused on this one restaurant. A lot of moving group. parts. I just want to make sure I'm getting it all straight in my It's head. a lot. Yeah. yeah. And so you know but it, it's kind of ironic that I'm here with Earl Giles now cuz you know I didn't start working with Earl Giles until about 2 years ago. Okay, so I was, so they were Earl Giles started back in 2000. Yep, they were selling just ginger 
ginger beer to start. But was it Earl Giles in 2014? It so was, seven yeah. Years ago, right? yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. So you, while Earl Giles is coming into formation, um, they had a solid five-year run before you came into the picture. Yep, yep. You're still dra- flying around the country, traveling around the country, coaching, teaching people about the seven pillars of classic cocktails yeah. and how your bitters fit into those cocktails and, and educating bartenders across the country on the next generation. Yeah, I mean... Basically, going back in time and showing what you know, we got so far away from yep. what what being a barman was. And so, before pandemic, like this building that we're in now, the Earl Giles Distillery, these guys had already put their letter of intent on this place. So this was supposed to open before the pandemic. These guys being Jeff, er, Jeff, and, and, Jeff and Jesse, and, and and so they were the they're the two founding owners and the main they're the face of the company, the main the main owners of the business. Uh, uh, in terms of like historically, so before we get into Earl Giles, um, you had an eleven-year run with uh, bitters, um, bitter cube, yep. bitter cubes, two thousand nine to twenty twenty. Yep. What was what was the progression? Why why stop bitter cubes? Uh, well, you know, I think after eleven years of being fifty fifty partners with, That's a fantastic. It's run, a great way. run. Yeah. It's a great run, and and it wasn't you know to be candid, it wasn't my idea. It wasn't. I didn't present that idea to the table. Ira did. Um, and it took several months to kind of untangle 11 years of business together. But I'm very proud of how we did it, the process, and how we ended. which was how to exit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, we, we are amicable. We are, you know, is our relationship the same as it was before? Absolutely not. Are we... Uh, friends, yes. Are we close? No, but we are okay, and we check in with each other. It's and still fresh. Give yeah. some time. And, and, you know, we still do work together. Like I said, I, they're still the only bitters I use anywhere that we work. We use them here. We have them on the shelf in syrups. We, we put them in elixirs, and I still get to blind taste the bitters uh, as one of the, the tasters, which is really awesome. Uh, we also launched a liqueur company together in 2012 called Heirloom Liqueurs. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, those I still proudly serve uh, everywhere I can. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I guess like, you know, the advice of, of how to end something like that, I think, you know, for me, it was a lot of honesty with each other. And, and you know, I, I certainly, you know, when it when it was presented to me, I was very resistant at first. Um, but then when I accepted that it was it was the right move and had to happen, you know, along with 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 our bitter cube lawyer and then me having a new lawyer, we worked through the terms of what that looked like. And we got to a place after a lot of back and forth that seemed fair, fair to me. Where did bitter cubes grow? What was it like? Like, give us a picture. Of yeah. I mean, you know, we started out making, you know, 20 gallon batches of bitters in in the back you know corner of a distillery in Madison, Wisconsin to, you know, producing 200 plus gallon batches of bitters distribution in 30 plus states and beyond. Uh, and then also launching that liqueur company in 2012. Is that a profitable model? Like, I don't know anything about this. Is that like, what, like definitely? Yeah. No, no perspective. Yeah. No, bitter cube, I think was, was definitely profitable. You know, it, it definitely paid our salaries. We had before the pandemic, I think there was 22 employees. Wow. Uh, and so, you know, that is a manufacturing facility as well as a team of consultants that were traveling around the country uh, doing training. That's awesome. Um, and so, yeah, it was a viable business. It still is a viable business. I'm sure it's a more viable business with one head of, of the team instead of two. Right. Um, I know that, he, you know, Ira obviously has a close team of people that he's working with. I'm not sure what the partnership structure is now that I'm not there. But, um, you know, I, I definitely... You know, what I think one of the easiest ways to say it is, you know, from 
from my vantage point, I'm like, you know, it was a it was a a two million dollar business that had two CEOs, <laughs> and it didn't need it. Yeah, you know, and I think that. Also, after 11 years, I think Ira was, was, was ready to move on, and, and that's okay. And I understand that. I think as I learned to know myself more, too, you know, I'm like, yeah, I get that, you know, and, and uh, I am happy about it. I think it was a hard thing, like any breakup, it was a hard thing to process. But again, like, Bittercube had become me. It was who I was. It was my identity, and it was an identity, a layer of my identity that I never thought I was going to have I was never going to live without. So to go through that process, to leave that behind and like start into the unknown of like what next and what's going to happen was so I was again so lucky to have that because I didn't think I would ever have so it. So neither you or Ira own Bitter Cube today. He does. A hundred percent. I believe he does. Oh, 100%, you said yeah. you want to go on. So I don't know. I was curious if like he wanted to get out of the the bitters business, and you want no, to no, no, no. I think I think it was more wanting to get out of working with me as a oh, business okay. partner. Honestly, I mean, and, you know, and I, I don't mean that in any other way than like it was either you know, do you want to keep this business or do I want to keep this business? How are we going to split up the business? And so what we yeah. did is we split things up. So after eleven years, we had started you know the bitters, the liqueur company. We started a line of uh, Bloody Mary mix called Garden Variety. We started these elixirs called On the Fly Elixirs. Uh, we started this tonic program called the Taylor Made Tonic Program. And so basically, I took all of the non bitter, non liqueur businesses and started a new company called Drinks Apothecary. Okay, and that was my new focus on this after the breakup. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and then Ira focused his attention on the bitters and the liqueur company. Um, and so it, it was kind of you know serendipitous where. I think Ira always wanted to focus less and less on a ton of different things and be able to focus on the thing that we did, which was bitters making. And you still have drinks apothecary today, or has that been consumed or like absorbed by absorbed by Earl Giles? Earl yeah. Giles. So okay. I started within a year. I had then you know I started uh, drinks apothecary during the pandemic after the sale of Bitter Cube. Lots and, of things moving yeah. around here. Yeah. Like I was even like doing my research. I was like, he's got so much going on. Is this still going on? Is are these things of the past? Are these yeah. things present? Um, so you so you take over the more of the liquid side, or like a bitters or a liquid, but the, the elixirs. The it was like everything that wasn't bitters or liqueurs. I kept got it. And tonics. Then, yep. Yeah. And, and and wanted to really what I wanted to do with drinks apothecary was expand the idea of customization. So like I wanted to take the idea of customization into the whole liquor side. Well, one thing I think is really exciting that I just want to preference with, like if you're listening to this, I think that people in the restaurant industry, when they get into the industry, they're like, I can either be a, a chef, a bartender, a server. But the truth is like, if you're truly passionate about the work you do, there's, there's life beyond working in the restaurant. And like, there's things you can do, especially as the, the the world of hospitality fragments and gets more specialized. And I think that we're moving in a direction of specialists. And everybody do one thing really well. Be known for one thing. Like you can help people with the one things that they want to do in their business to stand out in a, in a noisy place. So like you can like see where I'm going with this. Like it, for you, it started with bitters, where like the the world of cocktails was evolving, and there was an increase in demand for bitters because that's what the the, the palate evolved. But not every bar program can has the the the. It, resources or passion from their employees to make bitters so you can become the solution Mm -hmm. and then sell that and i think that we're continuing to fragment 
there's opportunities to take whatever passion you have and to make a business out yeah. of it. What, what's going on through your mind? So what I what what yes, and what Earl Giles has now become is one name with all of that fragmentation under one roof. So yeah. like what we are doing in the most simple way is 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 allowing people to have customization without complication. Because what I think the beverage world wants is they like every bar wants to have house-made syrups, house-made products, everything done exclusive. Not, you know, you can't get these flavors anywhere else. Everybody wants that. But what it takes to do that is expensive. It's a lot of labor, One, a lot of yeah. yeah. Sorry, keep going. A lot, a lot of, of inconsistencies. What you else? Know, a, a labor is an issue. Cost is an issue, and, and consistency is an issue, yeah. and efficiency. Yeah. So a big part of our conversation at Restaurant Unstoppable right now is that as we move into the future, it's getting harder and harder to do to be a mom and pop restaurant because you have to learn how to do more with less. And, and that this is a perfect example of doing more with less. Like you, you, you don't have to be the one that makes the bitters, that makes the, the syrups, that makes that's one. You need somebody on staff who is worth their weight in gold because they have the knowledge to do that and the desire to do that, which is not mm-hmm. easy to come by. Mm-hmm. But then you actually have the labor of doing the work. And where do you want your people? So like, here's the other thing. Your best people end up in the basement over a cauldron making all these things when what you as a as an operator, I want that person out in front of my guests. So if I only get them for 40 hours a week, how many of those hours am I willing to get, to put them away, locked away, making all of this stuff? Right. And if and if what we really are looking for is that touch point of it's mine, it has my name on it, it's the exclusive, we can do that for you. And so like what we do at Earl Giles, like Monday through Friday is we're meeting with bar people, hotels, national accounts, people who want to develop RTDs and beverages, and we're creating. And so we get a restaurant comes in, they say, here's what we're thinking about, here's some of the ideas we want to do. We create those mixes for them, and then we, we, they, we put their name on it. So you have custom accounts? Every one of them. is. A, oh, yeah, wow. I mean, like we have, on our, on our sell sheet, there's probably like 80 different cocktail mixes, and then we have 400 different flavors and extracts to choose from. So it's like going to the mo- movies where you know you can get like a cherry lime Sprite. But way bigger and way cooler. <laughs> but, cool. but like it's all customized. So you could be like, hey, I want to do a grapefruit Paloma, but I want mango in it. Like we've got it. Like that's and it's, cool. it's and it all happens in real time with the team. And so that's what that that you know, to me the 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 whole career spanning to this point, it's like all of it tied together. Right. It's like, here's all this work that I did in the restaurant world. Here's where I see the need. I see the need for you have to have a creative cocktail program. But now we talk about education, especially post-pandemic. Like the, the world of talented bar people, the pool of talented bar people. How can I have 12 people on a team opening a restaurant and none of it has experience? I've, and now this, these people can only afford to have me here three or four days to launch this program. Creating these cocktails on tap, pour over, draft. I'm trying to make it as simple as possible to serve the guest. And then we train throughout the year right so i mean i want to pull back some layers i mean i mean we have some time that we still i don't know if you have a hard stop in 15 minutes but like i feel like we can get so much information out of you especially around the economics things i definitely want to talk about with you going forward because we we have made it we are present day what you're doing now like we're here right we're present time yeah so I mean, I think you you can speak to the economics of a bar program, where that's going, what the future of that looks like, how to get the most in terms of margin out of your bar program. Uh, 
in uh, you're also a director for other restaurants and like you, you you have a lane where like you contribute that yeah and you know element. and, and, so. and to, to talk like to just move the focus back to Mr. Paul's a little bit um you know, as as Tommy was the one that did get right. us uh, to. We chat. haven't spoken That's much great. about Mr. No, Paul's. yeah. I was also calling it St. Paul's Diner Club when That's I first great. started. Yeah, yeah. I, so I'm getting I'm getting better. St. Paul <laughs> is a city. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so I'm horrible. It is Mr. Paul's Supper Club. Yes. I, well, you I, even I, were like Mr. Paul's Dinner Club, and I'm like, listen, man, it is supper. We are in Minnesota. It is supper. It ends at 6:30 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, t- like, talk to us about how that happened because we haven't really unpackaged that yet. And then we can get into like big picture, like just educate us. And yeah, how to- you know, Tommy Begno and I, we were like best mates. Like we were so close. We were working at Town Talk Diner together every day, uh, and then going, you know, drinking <laughs> at night, you know, crashing at each other's houses or picking each other up. And you know, we were like like thick as thieves uh, for like a real solid couple years. And then I left him is what he would say. He'd be like, you left me, you abandoned me. You went to Milwaukee and started bitter key with Ira. Was, uh, that was always like the running joke, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and he went on to have this really storied career, uh, continuing to be a better chef. You know I mean? He left town talk and I, I don't know exactly the trajectory, but you know, he got to work uh, at uh, butcher and the boar as the chef there. And like, I think that's where he really, you know, honed his, his style in and really made him prepared for what he was about to do, you know, with Mr. Paul's. Uh, not that he knew that, but like that, that was like, I think a really important step for him. And so, yeah, I mean, for 12, how many years did you say? 15 years we didn't work together. Yeah. Right. Um, and again, I moved away and then traveled so much as well. Yeah. Um, Tommy and- was episode 1051 or 50. One of those two. Sorry to interrupt you. I just want, if you want to, if you guys skipped over that yeah. episode, be sure to, to catch up. Sorry. And, and, and so we, we were kind of, you know, our, our friendship from like how close it was certainly had like decayed over that decade plus time. And in, you know, always trying to rekindle that or like find the time. I mean, I think there's something to be said in this industry, especially like you, you know, you, you, you hope you're friends with the people you work with because I, you know, I, I personally don't have a lot of time outside of work and family to have, you know, I, I don't have a lot of free time to go hang out and in, 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 in stuff. So I lean in that direction. Yeah. I think you have to love the people you work yeah. with. Yeah. Because if you don't, then how are you going to come in with that soul? And yeah. Like, yeah, there's a balance between leaving the personal elements out of the business side. Yeah. But anyway. So Tommy and I stopped working together for yeah. that long a time. And so obviously, like, your friendship is impacted by that and you're not seeing each other and stuff like that. But uh, we, we, always wanted to work together again and you know so so you know we we we, i had he found out about bitter cube and and the separation and all of that stuff happening and we had started to kind of talk a little bit more and he invited us over to uh his and carrie's place for a bonfire and so we had a couple dinners and cocktails and you know he he had you know kind of brought up that he was going to be opening the spot and you know it's kind of like two old buds kind of you know Moving their feet around, you know, like, hey, you know, maybe you'd want, maybe you'd be interested. Who's gonna make the first move? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and and then it kind of went from there. And I met Courtney, who, you know, him, you know, Courtney, Carrie, and and Tommy are at that restaurant, you know, a hundred times more than I am. I, yeah. I am, I am unfortunately, it isn't my my main job. I, I, I'm, you know, as the CEO of Earl Giles, I'm here mostly, but. Um, 
two factors with my my time there is that so I'm, I'm there during the day quite a bit at Mr. Paul's developing the drinks, making sure the program is. They just sound. had a two year birthday, right? They did, yeah, just last week. And you joined uh, Earl Giles in 2020. Yeah, basically we opened Mr. Paul's two years ago, and then Earl Giles opened about a year and a half ago. Okay, so, so it, in order of operation, it was. Mr. Paul's then Earl Giles. Yeah, and and I think you know, in, in all fairness, I don't like none of this was planned this way, right? So like I had just started Drinks Apothecary, and that was going to be my plan. I was going to now run this business uh, you know, of one person, which was really like exciting. Like you know, there was a very brief moment where I was like, "What am I going to do? I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, wh- who am I? Yeah, what do I? What am I? What do I want?" And then I came up with this, you know, drinks apothecary thing. And I was like, I found it. This is it. I'm going to hit the ground running. And then while I was running that business, it was the Mr. Paul's opportunity. And so now I was going to be the beverage director there. But again, it was always going to be a part-time situation. It was never intended to be my full-time gig um, because I was going to be doing drinks apothecary. But then the opportunity to merge drinks apothecary with Earl Giles presented itself after the fact. And so my involvement in this business kind of morphed into kind of taking control of the operation and up- taking partnership in the team structure altogether. It kind of happened after the agreement with Tommy. Um, so, you know, that, that kind of changed the things a little bit and changed my, my, my amount of impact opportunity. That and then two babies. I have two girls under yeah. two years old. Three kids now. You have three kids, yep. And uh, so, you know, neither of, none of those, well, Owen was, was here, but the two little girls were not even, uh, you know, in discussion yet. And right. so uh, we found out that we were having Juniper when we took our first trip to New Orleans. So we oh, did, wow. a, we did a, a big, awesome trip to New Orleans with uh, Tommy, Carrie, Courtney, myself, and, and my wife, Allison. And uh, we thought we had gotten COVID or the flu. And I don't know, my problem was probably just hungover. But then she found out that she was actually pregnant and not uh, COVID or the flu. Wow. So we found out that we were having a baby in New Orleans. Uh, what was yeah. the name of your first child? Uh, well, my, my first child. Oh, your, your, your first daughter, the, I guess. My first daughter's name is Juniper George Kosovich. Um, yep. We told my grandmother that we would name our, our next baby. Would her, The middle name would be George, whether it was a boy or a girl. That trip didn't have any negative impacts. Right? Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> It is, yeah. It's a weird one to navigate. Like, well, we, we found out we were having a baby after five days in New Orleans. Yeah, no, she is. My dad always sh- tells me I was. Def- he was definitely drunk when I was confused. Yeah, <laughs> sharp as attack, sharp as attack. So, uh, yeah, and then, uh, and, and 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 it was really special. You know, we we had went through three miscarriages, so we were, you know, when Allie and I started, my wife and I have been together for eleven years now, and uh, when we start, I think ten years, eleven years, it was when we started. Um, uh, dating and even after being married, like we weren't planning on having kids. I had already had Owen, and uh, we 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 were kind of happy with where we were headed. And yeah. then you know something happened, and it was time to uh, want to have babies. <laughs> so one thing I really want to get into, and I and along this line of being a specialist and knowing your lane and staying in it and finding ways to add value to multiple people, I think the the world of business is only, almost polyamory in nature, where like. The idea of being in, in business with one partner, I think we're moving away from that. Like, like I think we're not so worried about people cheating on me, you mm-hmm. know, where it's like, hey, like, I'm going to stay in my lane. Yeah. You stay in your lane. We go further together and I can have, I can add value to multiple different businesses. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of where I want to get. So, like, 
get into the logistics of the partnerships in your your polyamorous business <laughs> experience. I agree. So, you know, Ira and I were 50-50 partners and it was all in. So for 11 years, that relationship was there was no other work being done that didn't involve us. And that was like the pact that we had made. And maybe that's a detriment to us after that long. I mean, again, I think 11 years is a successful uh, uh, relationship length of, of business. But, you know, there is something maybe to that. Like, you know, my work with Bombay was all kind of wrapped into the Bittercube stuff and all of that. And so when I left Bittercube, the one thing I didn't want to do was repeat that situation again. I Meaning I didn't want to have that same style of business relationship. So with Drinks Apothecary, I was really excited about the independent nature of it. And then with Mr. Paul's, it was... It was always a, you know, my, my partnership there or my family's partnership in Mr. Paul's is a smaller, a smaller amount and a smaller role. Right. Right? So your role is director of beverage. Director of beverage. There's a bar manager there, Ainsley Jones. He but runs the team. But your family is a partner in the business. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So part of my, you know, my package, if you will, or my, my you know, my, my agreement in, in that relationship is that, you know, for my family's partnership in that business, I am the beverage director. So there's some, some, some cash exchanged, you know, some salary, but it's a very small amount. Okay. And then it's about that, that, that partnership, that, that the kind equity. of, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I think this is another weird, weird thing to talk about too, but like, this is a reason why I'm a huge fan of profit first. I know we talked about EOS. We're going to get into that. I'm not even sure where that comes into the picture. Maybe yeah. is it here at Earl Giles. Earl Giles. Earl yeah. Giles. So um, it was the first time I ever did it. And, and uh, I've talked to Carrie and Tommy about it and they know somebody that's really close to the oh, we're gonna get them EOS. Yeah, we have to. But I've, in terms of profit, first the reason why i love profit first is because it's cash flow allocation so it's five accounts i think in the restaurant industry they'd like to see six accounts for um for meals tax because that's not your money so first account is income second account is profit you take 10 percent of every penny earned because what's the point of having a business if you're not building wealth the next account is owner's pay so that's a separate cash flow where you know this is how we this is this is for the partners this is where the partners go. And then the next is operational expense. That's employees. That's cost of goods. That's labor. That's everything else. Rent. And then it's, did I already say tax? That and then, and then sales tax. So tax, you know, whatever that is. And then sales tax on top yeah. of that for the uniqueness of the restaurant industry. So you have all this for every penny you allocate cash flow. And then what the term, what, what, depending on like what money is left over in your operational expense. So you pay everybody first mm-hmm. and then what's left over determines growth. So I just love it. And I think especially because you, you can, if you're the founder of the company, you take your profit, you can, you can choose to split that profit up and share that with people too. So if you do profit sharing yeah. with your employees, profit, you know, okay. And profit is spelled P R O F I T. Is that, yes. am I saying it weird? <laughs> Never heard of that. No, oh. I was making a <laughs> joke is, about, that a, oh, is that it was a restaurant joke about the lack of profits. Where, are we get paid? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, like, but that's the whole idea. I'm trying to change that culture and oh, yeah. say, like, if you you take that off the top, start small, take your profit, let cash flow, the extra operational expense, yeah. determine your growth. And I think we get it backwards. Yeah, and this, you know, Earl Giles, uh, again, as a company. You know, I've only been part of this vision and this dream for about two years now, and so this was already a five-year thing in motion. And the original part of of Earl Giles that was like manufacturing syrups and mixers and things that was always kind of supposed to be a means to an end for these guys. Where like their big goal was like we're going to sell these products until we get into the distillery, then we're going to open up this distillery and this restaurant. And then that's going to be our focus. Right. I rolled into this place and I was expecting a distillery. Yeah. 
And I was like, yeah, 18,500 square feet of space. We have two stills. We have a canning line, a production facility, a full pizza kitchen, 36-seat bar, a mezzanine, and then the drinks apothecary, yeah. which lives upstairs. So just to, to tie us back in, so that after, you know, drinks apothecary was during the pandemic, a little push cart that had like maybe 50 different extracts on it. And I was making custom tonics and mixers again for a restaurant industry that was basically shut down. Um, and then we start to see growth in the hotels as the hotels started to reopen. That was like a big, big opportunity for us. Like we have product in almost every Moxie hotel and AC hotel in the country now, uh, for example. Uh, and, and, uh, we, we really saw this thing that we were trying to push before the pandemic about, you know, let us be your prep kitchen really makes sense as the restaurant world started to reopen because you know now more than ever people are like shit we can't have a guy downstairs for 40 hours a week making syrups right like how do we how do we factor some of this in a little bit or my whole staff isn't here how do i relaunch with a new staff and so that was a big part of of the expansion we've doubled revenue in the bottling company side of the business for the last two years i think we'll do it again next year as well interesting um so this whole we got down this path is talking about the power of staying in your lane I mentioned profit first as a way to make sure you're allocating cash flow so you can find partners and and, and negotiate percentages and have that structure around it. Uh, we kind of painted the big picture of what, of what Orgile, or I don't know why I'm struggling with the names of your, your, your operations. Or, Earl Giles, I'm saying it correctly. Right? Earl Giles, yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. I see the gene, it throws me off, uh, but yeah. it's a, it's a G- Giles. Uh, so Earl Giles. Um, and I mean, what what do I need to know if we if you can choose the path of this conversation going forward? What do you want to talk about? What what do you think I need to pull back on you to leave my listeners better off? I know EOS, so we can talk about when, when that can. But what else? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, you know, the 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 other like, if we're like, well, now what are you doing, and what are you what are you here for? It's so like why we why why I was bringing it back to Mr. Paul's is like Mr. Paul's is the perfect example of like our perfect customer. It, it, as a as a provider of product, so like it's the full circle that I get to experience yeah. on both sides. Get up on that mic. I get to yeah, sorry, buddy. Uh, I get to experience that on both sides. So you know, we have sixteen drinks on tap or uh, are on the menu at Mister Paul's Supper Club. All of those mixers and components come from this facility, uh, and then the prep team there, very small, very small amount of hours produces. You know the the cocktail program for that bustling restaurant. Got it. We've got eight drinks on tap. Everything else is pour over, and all of that stuff is done customized here at, at Earl Giles. We're gonna take another break to thank our sponsors. We're yep. gonna come back, and I want to get into the economics of that. You I got wanna, it. Kind of want to drill down on like the business side of how is this yep. even possible? Yep. Recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often. Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals. 
recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time, these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. RestaurantUnstoppable.com slash RSP. This episode made possible by Owner.com. Owner.com is the quickest and easiest way for your customers to order directly from you without the expensive 30% commission fees. With Owner.com, you'll save thousands every month when customers order through your website and branded app instead of third-party delivery apps and reward your customers with a built-in loyalty program that turns them into regulars who order again and again. Owner.com also helps you rank higher on Google with world-class search engine optimization built specifically for restaurants with an AI-powered website. We cannot forget lists. Build a huge list of people who live near your restaurant fast and market to that list on autopilot with text and email sent at the perfect time to help you grow sales and stay top of mind. Owner.com gives you everything you need to grow and market your restaurant online with no contracts or hidden fees. Visit Owner.com slash unstoppable right now to book your free demo and see why thousands of restaurant owners trust owner.com to power their restaurants online. We're back and I want to finish. I want to round off what is going on here with Earl Giles because I feel like there's more of the story that we can unpackage. Definitely want to hit on EOS. I know you're an EOS operation mm-hmm. here at Earl Giles and I love EOS. Yep. And then uh, I also want to get into the economics of you know, the, this model that you're having where, where you're working with different restaurants across the country, kind of being the elixir, bitters, all things cocktails that you can't do in-house solution and how, like, is that even affordable or in reach for most restaurants is yeah. something I want to unpackage. Where do you want to start? Yeah, I mean, let's start there. I mean, EOS is what, you know, let's finish on EOS. That is what is got us to where we are today. Where are you today? Paint the picture of yeah. where you are today. I mean, we are, you know, a year and a half in, uh, you know, basically we opened for business uh, uh, last summer. So, you know, like roughly 18 months ago, we, we call our one year anniversary kind of like more November was when we had our full licensing and operation. Um, and, you know, the original, you know, track for this business of Earl Giles was to open this distillery and restaurant and be distributing spirits and liqueurs uh, to multiple states. Uh, and that process has taken longer than we had originally anticipated or, or the team had originally anticipated. And so what's been really exciting about the growth of the bottling company side, the bottling company being the non-alcoholic mixer side of the business, that side of the business has doubled revenue for two years straight. It'll do it again next year. And that has supported the growth, the slower growth of this other side of the business, uh, which has been really exciting to see. And so, you know, we are finding our stride in this building. Um, I think we had a expectation of what we wanted to do for weekly sales and 
it's been more sporadic, right? Like I think that that's the other thing about what we're doing here is that it is different. It is a distillery. I think that when people hear Earl Giles Distillery, they don't know exactly what they're getting into. It's a distill pub. It is, yeah. It's, it's like a, a spirit pub, pub but yeah. Like, but yeah. spirit pub. You don't see a lot of those. Yeah, and the food is incredible. Our chef, Matt Reisinger, is very, very talented. And like, yeah, it's a pizza place, but like, it's a pizza place and it's doing a lot of great stuff. Well, you're more than just, correct me if I'm wrong, I've heard spirits, liqueurs, tonics, syrups, yeah. elixirs. Yeah. Self, yeah. Like, like yeah. So keep going. There's that. kind of three prongs, right? So there's the distillery. The distillery now is producing six skews: gin, vodka, rum, uh, and then three liqueurs. We have a spritz liqueur, which is like an, an aperitif, a fernet, and a quadrasec. You have all heard of triple sec before, but have you ever heard of quadrasec? No. Four oranges. Uh, four different types of oranges, a little bit of orris root. So that's our, our orange liqueur. Uh, with more stuff to come, we have two stills. We have a Vendome still from Kentucky and then a Detroit Hot Rod still, which is this really cool piece of technology. There's only 14 of them in the world made by people who used to de- design hot rods. Oh, cool. So it kind of takes the idea of a radiator and uses like the idea of a radiator to create vapor distillation, which is super cool. I'll show you that in a little bit. Please. Uh, and then you have the restaurant, right? So uh, very, very large space to fill. Um, and uh, you know, we have a huge flux where we'll do We'll do twenty-five grand on a Saturday and four grand on a Monday. Uh, we're open seven nights a week. We're open three days. We first originally started open like we were closed on Mondays and open for lunch and dinner six days a week. Which we had to pivot and move around. And I think what's cool about being in a like a, a drastically climate difference is that it gives you these opportunities to be like winter menu or winter hours, summer hours, and so like you can kind of always pivot your hours based on season. Uh, and so so right now we've found a really good stride. I think that like the hours of operation are working for us and uh, we're currently in this position of like trying to control cost with a different number than what we had anticipated. Meaning we wanted to hit 70 grand every week and if we hit 70 grand every week everything's fine. But if we clip 60 grand in a week suddenly we're hitting issues, right? So it's like that ten thousand dollar and twenty in another week. You got to find that balance, right? Exactly, and that that's the thing. And and, and those are rare. Um, and and right now we're still not. It's still difficult to predict, right? Like we're trying to plan every week for what's going to happen, and it's just a beast of its own. Like one, you know, suddenly we'll have a Wednesday night and we do seventeen thousand dollars, you know. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, do you sell plants here too, or is that we just don't the sell vibe? plants? No, the plants are just here. I this love is the, the vibe. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, this is. I think it's very important, um, and it's a little thinned down. We had some, uh, you know, uh, there was some some blight that we had to deal with uh, in the plants, and so they they're a little thin right now. But we will be bulking them up again. We'll probably try to make it through the winter. But I think, especially in Minnesota, it's important to have this much foliage inside. Uh, yeah. So uh, yeah. So I think we're so. You also mentioned garnishes. Is that do you sell? Yes. Yeah, yep. Yeah. So, so Earl Giles, the bottling company. Again, we make a line of uh, dehydrated fruit called Disco Citrus. So, uh, again, all customizable. So you can pick your fruit, pick what color. You know, it's edible metals or you know, like uh, luster dusts, okay. different colors. Uh, we do uh, cocktail colognes, so aromatics that you spray on top of cocktails. We make three, but they're all customizable. Right. And in the, and I'm big on experience right now. I'm, I'm I'm preparing for my conversation with. 
Joe Pine, the author of The Experience Economy, where I can't wait to open the lid on that dude. But all these little variables, all these compounding things go into the, that experience. And it's a lot of labor on restaurants mm-hmm. to be able to produce all these different experiences, yep. all these different sensory levels, you know, whether it's the visual, the flavor, the smell. Like and there's opportunities for you to stay in your lane in yep. delivering the experience and then finding people who can help you create. And this is why at the end of the day, no matter what we're producing for you, we are still a hospitality company because yep. what hospitality really is, is trust, I think, in a way. And what I need and what I'm getting, what I'm working towards is that I have trust with my clients. So the trust with us would be for someone to be like, hey here's a list of these new drinks. Can you make my mixes for me? Right? So like we have like the beverage director for all of Marriott fly in and we'll work on menu R&D for two days for three different projects. And then there'll be four more projects that are just sent. Just here's the menu. Can you make this? And that trust of like, I know that you guys have the palate and understanding to create these things for this team. That's the trust that we're really like, you know, basing this on. And I think all that comes from hospitality. I love that. So, what do you think makes sense? The economics? Like, how do we, like, what is it, like, get into, because I know this is, you're you're on one side of it where you have the Earl Giles business, uh, and then one of your clients is also one of your partners, Yep. right? Yeah. Um, so I know that you have a real close and behind that, yeah. the scenes as to, like, cost and expense and, like, how do you do that? How What, what are the economics of partnering? It's actually most conflict? difficult with your partners, right? So, like, it, it is... I, you know, in a company that does $2 million of, you know, uh, non-alcoholic mixer sales in a year of that, you know, a small percentage of that, that is Mr. Paul's Supper Club. Like that relationship is, is the most difficult to navigate because at the same, like Tommy is also a restaurateur and he's like, well, you also can make these things here. How do we find the middle of what is good for the team, what is good for the pocketbook, and what is good for the uh, experience. And like, mm. it's been great to have someone like Tommy to have that conversation with because if I can't figure it out with my own partners, how can I expand the, the, the business right. model elsewhere? The easiest partnerships are hotel partners in a lot of ways because there's a mandated program that if we can be part of that mandated program, it becomes very easy for people. But some a place like Mr. Paul's is... That's where I want to be. I want to be in all of those restaurants. I want those bar teams to know what we're capable I of think for them. Mr. Paul's is doing like eight million a year. Is that the number I remember? I five, five and a half, five, really? Five and a half. Yeah, yeah. I don't know where I got eight million. Uh, well, if Tommy said that, then that's what I said too. So, okay. <laughs> but like, I'm, I'm assuming a big percentage of that is alcohol sales. That place is cranking out. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 of those alcohol sales, most of that is cocktail. A lot of good wine right now as well. We've seen wine tick up, which is really awesome. But it is a cocktail. Place, you know, how which many is of great. your cocktails are on draft there? Eight. How many cocktails are there? I think there's 14 or 16 right now. So how do well, you... Well, let's say, so there's eight on draft. There's four of them in slushy machines. Yeah. So that's 12, and then four of them are pour over. How... No how, drinks are made all the menu. What percentage of restaurants do you think are actually doing cocktails on draft right now? Um, all of the ones that I'm involved in. Uh, in fact, I think that the draft system is the most important bar tool. Why? Because the most important thing that we are doing is trying to get that that cocktail to the guest in a timely manner. I'm trying to create the most unique, exciting, visually stimulating cocktail experience to get it to the guest the fastest possible. And so taps and pour over anything. So it took me a long time to get to this. Why? But because I was self-serving. Mm. My original... Ego? Yeah. <laughs> what? 
my original, everything I did was based on what I wanted or what Ira and I wanted or what we thought was right. And I think maybe for that time period, it was important. We had to not have cranberry juice because we didn't make fucking Cosmopolitans, right? We have a Cosmopolitan on the menu here. It's delicious, by the way. <laughs> but like those types of lines in the sand, I think were important at the beginning of this thing. Um, and I don't think they are anymore. I think the most important thing is efficiencies, consistencies, and visually exciting drinks. And if I don't have the time to do the visual element because I'm too busy doing the same thing that everybody else knows how to do Shaking around town, yeah. no one gives a shit. And, and, and not, all, not all of our clients agree. I, and especially in tertiary markets, when I'm opening a bar, like you get people that are like, we want you to do all the cool stuff that you do, but we also don't want to scare people away. And it's like, well, I'm not going to – I'm just trying to make it easier. And like I, to me, it's a lack of – again, a lack of knowledge and, un, and understanding education. If somebody downplays pouring an old-fashioned out of a bottle and handing it to you, like I don't understand why. Like why, why wouldn't you want that, right? Do you want your soup? made in front of you all of them do you go to the ramen shop and like actually could you start the ramen broth from chop scratch those here? carrots and i will wait yeah. for them to boil please you know and at the end of the day all we're doing is sugar soup it's yeah. just sugar soup man well there's that level of showmanship and i think it goes back to the experience but there's ways to go beyond the experience of seeing the drink be made to the to the presentation yeah. and, the, and and i'm not saying don't shake any drinks don't stir any drinks i'm saying you have 16 drinks on the menu and you're a five million dollar restaurant what like this what, is how you make what that. Can you stream exactly? Yeah. And and you have one drink of those sixteen drinks that needs to get shaken because it has, uh, you know, egg white or methacellulose or something in it. Then that's all the people need. Have I said do more with less yet in this episode? I don't think so. I think I have actually. Okay. Yeah. Do more with less. Dude. Yeah. Like yeah. You and we have to figure out where can we like it's it's, it's success by a thousand cuts, not death by a thousand cuts. Like what little tweak. Can we? Hit, were you joking when you didn't? When you when I said, "Have you heard me say you got a?" Um, what, what did I say? I already forgot what I said. Um, do more with less. Yeah. Fuck. I don't think. Did we say that already? I think I did. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, "Is he fucking with me again?" I can't. I'm talk. not fucking with you. Okay. No, I. <laughs> but just, like, I'm super high, man, you, and I don't remember anything. You have to do more with less. Yeah. You know, and um, and this is a perfect example of that. Like, which ones make sense to have the showmanship? Do I need to do every step with every cocktail? And can we streamline the, the ones that are maybe popular but don't have as much of a flair to the process of making them? So, And then here's two things. So if we're thinking about the social media aspect of this world, are people taking photos of you jiggering your rye whiskey into a cup? Or are they taking photos of the finished cocktail with this beautiful garnish? And if I only have time to do one... What's more important? And to me, it's the glitter, it's the pizzazz, it's the visual element. I would say most people, yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and to me, I don't, like, I'm not taking away from any of that. I'm saying if, if what is the best thing for the business, what's the best thing for the customer, and its efficiencies, its consistencies. I have, I, we have such a low t- turnover at Mr. Paul's Supper Club because I personally think for the bar team, we have created something that's easy to do. And when you make it easy to do during service, easy to do for a batching, you have a happier bar team that is a better hospitality ambassador. They, and, and, and that's, I, this is the resistance I hit most of the time in my consulting worlds. I have to convince people of what, I've, what, I, what took me 15 years, 20 years to learn. I have to do that in three days. And I have to get somebody from not knowing how to make drinks all the way over to the other side, which is, Pouring it from a tap is the way to go. Trust me, it is. I mean, and I hate to say it's all about throughput, but in terms of 
volume and profitability in making money so you can provide security to the, your staff and your people. Like, mm-hmm. throughput's huge. Yeah, and that's a, been a big part of Earl Giles. Everyone here has the ability to have insurance. We compensate. We cover... 50 to 75% of that based on where your position is in the business. And that's a hard number to look at every month when you're doing your, your, your P and L's when you're, when you're going, did we make money or lose money? That stuff that we're doing to protect our team and to keep our team in, in, in a a positive work environment is the stuff that uh, is unwavering right now as best as we can to, you know? So in terms of, um, the, like, I don't know if we really drilled down. I think we're kind of painting the big picture. I don't know if you can give us any specific numbers, but in terms of choosing to, to work with companies like Earl Guile. You did I, it. I fucking did that. I, told, <laughs> I promised you I wasn't going to do it again. Earl Giles. Um, <laughs> it's a weird one to correct people because people say it a lot. I, I was at the chiropractor before I saw you today, and the guy kept saying Giles, and I was like, when do I? Now I've let him say it three times. Now do I correct him? Is that an asshole move? Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I promise to. Earl Giles. Earl Giles, uh, and so in the so if if we wanted to outsource all these elements, putting drink like, at what point do we? Is it because we can do more throughput? Where is the labor really being picked up, or the the the, the margins really being spread? Yeah, so your labor in prep. Okay. So prep labor. So if you have a twelve drink menu and every drink has one ingredient that has to be made, then that and then if you're making drinks a la minute through service, the time is adding up. So you can produce more cocktails, therefore making more money. Um, you know, the psychology of uh, getting a drink on the table before food comes, you know, there's like an 80% chance that people order a second drink if they've already had a drink before the food comes. So if you're, if you're in a position where your team can't uh, get the cocktails out fast enough and food is hitting the table, you're losing sales. So your guest check average has the opportunity to be right. a higher guest check average because of the efficiencies behind the bar. Right. Another thing I want to bring to surface is you've got to start treating your little business like a big business if you ever want to be a big business. It's not, it's not a privilege that you get invited into the big business pants of the world. You just start yeah. doing big business also, things. Also, in the world of of what we do, if what we're doing is hospitality, if I'm a bartender and I'm in my well and I'm doing this, looking down at my tools, looking down at my ice, or I can do these things so fast that I get more time to engage, I don't want your, I don't want your spending money today. I want all of your spending money. It's relationships. I want you to come here. I want you to always want to come here. I want you to tell all your friends to come here. And that's not going to happen with bartenders who are buried in their thing. So we're removing as much of that as possible so they can be ambassadors to Earl Giles, ambassadors to Mr. Paul's Supper Club okay. and beyond. EOS. Yeah. Dude, I'm a huge fan of EOS. Based here in Minneapolis. I don't know if you knew that. Did you know that? I did. Yeah, that's oh. why we had we've 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 had that's why Tommy and Carrie know somebody that's part of EOS and then we had somebody come in and do traction with us because they're implementer. locally. Yeah, an implementer. Yeah. Yep. Um, so I am not an implementer. Uh, I, I I think I have aspirations on becoming an implementer, uh, but I do have the blessings to talk and promote about EOS. Um, I actually had uh, Gino Wickman on the show. Um, he did not want to talk about EOS because he has moved on. He has sold his portion of EOS mm-hmm. to, I think, I want to say the CEO is currently Mike Payton. Uh, I had Mike Payton on the show to talk about process. So in EOS, there is the EOS um, Traction Book of Libraries. Yep. Uh, I've had Mike Payton on the show to talk about process. I've had Gino Wickman to talk about his book. Um, 
I think it's like the 10 disciplines or something like that, which is not in that library. Uh, I, I was hoping to connect with, um, Renee Bauer, I think I'm saying his name correctly, but he's behind How to Be a Great Boss. And I'm trying to get uh, the the author of um, Mike Winters, I think is his name, of Rocket Fuel. Okay. That's what I'm really excited about mm-hmm. because I am not Rocket Fuel and I need Rocket Fuel. Do you, are any of these words me- nope. meaning anything? Nope. So in the world of EOS, um, the Rocket Fuel is your, your integrator. So it's the person that knows how to take your vision as the... Mm-hmm. the um, the visionary, the the CEO, the dreamer, yep. and yep. like they they're That's good me. in the dirt. Yep, they're good in the dirt. That's field. Kevin. So yeah. you met you met our our integrator. Yep. You met the that 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 he's our our operating officer. Yeah, they chief build what you officer. see. Yep, 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 yep. So anyway, and I keep everyone on task. So uh, I'm a huge fan. Um, I'm 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 trying to huge game changer. What's yeah. that? It's a huge game changer. So How our been, our yeah. experience with it. So. I had never done any of that with Bitter Cube. Um, Iron, I never had any of that. I think it was, I, you know, I look back in hindsight and man, I wish I would have had these tools and this resource so with, we, with Bitter Cube. And yeah, I didn't. like paint the picture of how it's been a game changer. Like so, what elements of it? So, how I got involved in it was as I was starting to work with these guys and when it became the plan to merge the two businesses. And, and, and as I think as their vision for Earl Giles was changing from what it was going to be to what it could be was when we did our first traction meeting. Uh, and it was, you know, half a day, all the partners and investors in a room, and we built this whole thing. VTO. Yep. Yeah. And it was amazing. And now our entire uh, work week is built on on that. So we have an L10 for all departments. What's an L10? Uh, that's our level 10. That's our, our, our you know, Weekly bird's meeting. eye view, uh, looking at uh, everything that's happening. It keeps uh, tasks moving forward. We've got quarterly plans, yearly plans, five-year, 10-year goals. They're talked about like mantras, right? Like yes. this is what we're doing yes. every day. Yeah. And Dude, it's huge. Yeah. And what you're talking about is communication. And it creates, a, it's communication, language, and growth. It's a system to communicate, a system to echo your language, your culture, language is culture, and a vision that is constantly being echoed in a process to be constantly working towards the vision. And this is what happens with businesses. They start a business and then they get lost in the day-to-day of the business that they, they don't ever grow. They never get 1% better. EOS is a formula to get 1% better every day. Mm-hmm. How does that work? Yeah. So um, I think accountability is the one and then creating the proper lines of communication. And so and maybe like it's not on an every day getting better. It's definitely on an every week. Like you have, you know, our, all of our meetings are on Tuesdays. And so you basically have seven days to move the needle on these things and have, have the, 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 yeah, to, 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 to bring them forward. And, um, what have we done with our rocks? What are we doing, uh, to, to move the rocks forward? Are we going to complete them yeah. on time? And we're, we're using EOS language right now. Yeah, so yeah. the rocks are basically goals. So the, the and to kind of go 30,000 feet, you have your 10 year plan and then there's a five year plan and then the one year plan and the quarterly plan and the weekly plan. And you're basically saying, what do we do this week to get to that 10 year plan? Yep. Right. So everything is reverse engineered to, to basically take bite size yep. chunks or rocks to move. And then everybody has their own rocks, depending on what lane they're in mm-hmm. to move towards that 10 year plan. So you're, you basically have quarterly rocks. And your goal every quarter is to choose your rocks that you're going to accomplish this quarter. And every week you're saying, am I getting closer to that quarterly goal? Mm-hmm. And then if you're like, how, how 
talk about how that's impacted what you've done here. Give me an example. Well, because I, I think again, like in a in a uh, a business that is doing so many different things, that organization is very important. Um, and I think that what traction and, and what the L10 allows us to do, uh, EOS creates the operation of the business instead of doing the business. And I think that all of my partners are doers. So like, you know, Jesse's working the floor right now, right? Urkula is the head of uh, R&D and, and I'm working up in the apothecary. I got a dinner tomorrow night, right? So like you can get bogged down in, in your business and doing your business to the point that you look up a year later and you're doing the same thing. You're in and the business, not yes. on Yes. Yeah. And, and I want to do both. And so track, this, this traction exercise and creating the L10 and the plan and the platform allows us to not only for us as operators stay on task. And I think that's especially in the restaurant industry, like that attention deficit and that. that you get into yeah. our little silos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and, and so for, for me, it's that moment every week where you come up for air and you go, did I do it? What am I doing? Where are we? It holds people accountable and honest. And it allows you to, I think, help each other too. Like, you know, when you're talking about your, you know, uh, workload, work stress, home life, that whole thing that we start with, you know, if you're at threes, the next step is to look to your left or right and go, you know, how can we help? What can we do to take off the burden? Yeah. Um, that doesn't happen a lot here. You know, there's not a lot of that, but um, it is a really great way to check in and connect with everybody. And as the CEO, I go to all four of those meetings in the departments and then we go to the C-level, talk with all the C-level and I leave on that Tuesday feeling like I've got a pretty good understanding of where we are, where we need to head this week, and yeah. are we on goals for our yeah. future? We covered a lot of the. I'm, I'm like, I'm trying to like, what's the point of having core values if you don't echo them? Yep. So I think a lot of people write things, that, their core values, their vision down, but they never resurface it. Yeah. So our core values here at Restaurant Unstoppable is we have integrity. We do the say, we do the thing we say we're going to do. We are students. We're here to learn. We are educators. We're here to teach what we're learning. We are collaborators. And I see this a lot in what you're doing, where. I mean, a lot of my core values are manifesting in your story. You started as a student, you became the teacher, mm-hmm. you you stayed in your lane, you learned your lane, you started collaborating with other people to go further together. We are communicators. I think that's where EOS comes in, where like you're communicating where are we going? How are we staying on track? Do we have a process to communicate where we're going? And then we show up, we have fun. And I love it yeah. when my interviews reflect my core values because those core values were built very intentionally yeah. because that's what I've seen. Those are the that's what it means to be unstoppable. Our number one core value, which I'm I'm happy it is because it's the thing that I have I don't think I was born with it as much and I it's a muscle that I've had to learn and, and it makes you a better leader is empathy. Mm. So empathy is our, our number one core value. And, and we try to bring empathy into every situation and every decision. Yeah. I see empathy as communication because yep. really it's yep. just, it's emotional communication. Yeah. You know, it's using that emotional intelligence to communicate, to, to put yourself in their position and try mm-hmm. to understand. I think, um, so for me too, is as we built this company, like the the most important thing that I'm having to remember how to do in many different ways is is bigger picture understanding because I think that as the company gets bigger and the staff gets larger and the silos get more dynamic and there's more layers of management when decisions are made you know five layers away from you that impacted something greatly trying to get everybody to see this holistic approach or this bigger understanding like hey this thing impacted the opportunity to get this account which would have opened up x y and z and so we have to make sure that we're making decisions correctly based on 
the potential trajectory of what our opportunities yeah. are. You know, even as a, an established business, we are still in an infancy. Yeah, and every opportunity counts, and every opportunity you know begets another opportunity. And and uh, it's it's important to try to like get that to be a ripple effect. Yeah, man. I've loved this conversation. Can you believe that that was two hours? We're almost at two hours of recording. Doesn't that go by fast? <laughs> it does. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm so happy that I made the choice to go long because I, I feel like I'm I'm connecting on such a deeper level with my guests now. Really letting yeah, things yeah. unpackage. And uh, anything we didn't discuss that you want to get up before I start asking you the final questions? I mean, other than like, you know, I think to the listeners, I think it's like we're available. Like we're here to help. Um, orders at earlgiles.com. And... Uh, Every week we are getting to meet with new people all over the country and talk about how we can make their bar program more efficient and, and, and uh, uh, more delicious. I mean, one of the, the missions in the mission statement is to change the world through inspiring, empowering, and transforming the industry. Um, we talked about, I think, we kind of addressed what needs to change in the industry around this idea of just doing more with less. But anything in terms of what you would like to see change in the industry? I think they're changing already. I think I'm happy about where the changes are. I think that it's all a pendulum. Mm -hmm. And I think that like, you know, having come into this cocktail world in that place of like, you know, being kind of born of that like arrogant cocktail world mentality and now operating a business that like doesn't really even squeeze fresh juices. (laughs) You know, it's a big, it's a big cyclical thing. And so I think that like, to me, um, that growth, I think, is the most important piece of what, what I've done. And I, I'm excited about where we are. Um, I think what needs to change is, it, you know, I think it's going to do it on its own. I don't think it need, need, you know, needs the word any balance. help from me. <laughs> Finding the balance, <laughs> you know. So. I mean, uh, yeah, we didn't even get into, like, pers- like, life balance and work balance stuff. But, yeah, I think I'm balancing in your drink menu and then balancing what the expectation I'm a is to execute. I'm to talk to you about life balance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, yeah, me too, man. <laughs> like, but I do think there's something to be said about just doing what you feel like you're meant to do. And if you find that thing, you, you are, your cup's full, man. My cup's full. Do I wish I had a girlfriend sometimes? Yeah. But like at the yeah. same time, like I get to move around and meet amazing people and yeah. I know I'm doing work that helps other people. So like, I don't know, like, you know, like there, it, when you find that thing, if you're able to find that thing, yeah. it's special. This amazing yeah. team here at, at, I mean, at Earl Giles, the people that I get to work with every day, you know, Mike Byrne, our director of operations. And like I said, Kevin Briette, our, our chief operating officer and Jesse and Jeff and our distiller, Jeff Fricky, our chef and, and that Mr. Paul's. I mean, the fact that I am able to, to, you know, I think that they're very gracious with with me and the babies, and you know, it's hard to be gone at night. You know, too many nights in a row, and so I, I know it's not permanent, and I know that I'll be able to be there more. But I, I've been very lucky to be part of that Mister Paul's team, and and to have my name on that, you know, in any capacity is, is right. just such a blessing. So yeah, for sure, I think there is something to be said about spinning the flywheel early in your career, so you can create opportunities later. Yeah. I think you've done that. Like yeah. you busted your ass for how many years working behind the bars. Yeah. To, to develop, to, to have the reputation to be a partner. Yeah. You know? It took a pandemic to slow me down. I was 60% right. on the road before the pandemic. Yeah. And then it all crashed, you know, and I was stuck in our, we were at the time living in a, you know, 800 square foot apartment downtown Minneapolis. Right. And it got small really quickly because before it was every week I was gone and on the road. And yep. now the idea of getting back on the road is, you know, it almost makes my stomach drop a little yeah. bit. <laughs> Here come the questions. All right. What is one thing about your business, a value, a system, an uncommon thing that makes you truly unstoppable? 
I would think, again, kind of what our common theme has been today was that what makes us different than any other distillery or, 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 or you know, beverage business is our ability to create other people's dreams and other people's visions. And I think that there's a level of hospitality to our business at Earl Giles that's unstoppable. And I think that what is unstoppable about Mr. Paul's Supper Club and the team there is this unwavering uh, commitment to a good fucking time. Yeah. And I think there's something really special about that. And you felt that last night. Oh, fuck yeah. yeah. I'm still feeling it. It's still reverberating inside <laughs> me. Uh, the mission statement, again, is to change the world through inspiring, empowering, and transforming the industry. How have you personally transformed? Who are you today versus the man you were back in 2000? <sighs> man, I really, I feel that I have changed and grown a lot. Um, you know, I've worked, I've had a lot of people uh, work, you know, with me over the years and very closely. I hope that, at 42, my leadership technique is much softer and gentler. And again, like, you know, we were talking, I think, last night a little bit, you know, or, or earlier today about, you know, I keep getting older. The bartenders are still in their early 20s. How do I connect to those people? Um, and again, that empathy piece is, is listening to understand uh, and, and trying to have empathy around people uh, in their, their position uh, and patience. Mm. I hope I'm just a more patient teacher than I was, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah, I love that. If you got the news... You'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the work of you, your restaurants, and your businesses would be lost with your departure. With the exception of three pieces of wisdom you could leave behind for the good of humanity and your legacy, what would they be? Three pieces of wisdom. I would say the first one is a mantra we say here often is it's just sugar soup. So whenever things get a little too crazy around here, we just remember that we're making cocktails. We're not saving lives. Um... I think that, uh, you know, the other idea is it, believing in yourself is super important. There's a balance, you know, that, that we talked about ego a few times here. And, and, you know, ego can be a bad thing and a detriment. But I think that, you know, fi- finding and understanding your ego, I think, is important. And knowing that it can be a powerful tool to actually, you know, do good for your, yourself. And believing in yourself is important. I don't, you know. That's one. That was two. That was two. Wait. First one was the uh, the the what did I just say? <laughs> the, the believing in your You're own the one ego, feeding me drinks. Balance your ego was number two. Yeah, <laughs> balance your ego is number two. What yeah. was the first one? The first one I forget what I just said. The listeners, yeah, yeah, they'll, they'll get it. And then the third one, <laughs> the, the third piece of advice would be, uh, I think, remember to um, to fight for balance. You know, like like while your ego is pushing you to do the work and work hard and and work harder than everybody else, to also remember to find the balance to make it all worthwhile. Is that fair? Find your balance, feed the ego, and another great virtue that is in there. Somewhere. <laughs> <I'm not laughs> there is no question. I don't remember. Man. Thank you so much. You oh, are man. unstoppable, <laughs> and this is where we have you call somebody out. So, um, <laughs> who do you respect and admire? Yeah, I, I found you through Tommy. Yeah, he told me I had to talk to you, and this is really the north star of restaurant unstoppable going I forward. Love it, man. I just want to be the person to share my yeah. stage, but I want you to tell me who's doing it right, who has knowledge, who's, who, who needs to be made an example of. What is, who is that person? So I think that you're on your way back out east and you were going to head uh, to Chicago. 
I do think stopping in Milwaukee and potentially right. meeting Mr. Ira Koplowitz could be a lot of fun. Ira Koplowitz. Ira Koplowitz. Yeah. You know, my business partner of 11 years at Bitter Cube, and uh, he is now, uh, you know, running the Bitter Cube uh, empire that he is building now on his own. And I think it'd be really cool to, to check in with him and see what's happening in Milwaukee. It's a lovely, lovely town. I'd love to go there. I mean, I, I stopped quickly, but I would love to go back. Yeah. And then um, where, what other cities are you, you were going to stop in? Honestly, man. I don't know how much stop it I'm going to do. Okay, yeah. But it'll just give me any... Like, it's more not, less about where I'm going, okay, more hurt, about hurt, hurt. who you just think the industry needs to hear. Like, what perspective? Who's doing it right? Yeah. Who, who has the ability to transform the industry if they can share some values and wisdom? Who is yeah. that for you? You know, I think um, another person that comes to mind... Um, and uh, you know, I'm trying to. I think, feel like you've kind of saturated your visit here in Minneapolis. So I'm trying to think uh, farther out a little bit. Um, you know, another person that would uh, I think be a lot of fun for you to chat with is a guy named Justin Burrow. He's out of Houston. He has a, a bar called Captain Foxheart's Bad News Bar and Spirit Lodge, and he has a, uh, a storied uh, history in the business and uh, operates. You know, a bar with the best name ever, uh, but it's an awesome cocktail Captain bar in Houston. Fox, here's bad news. What so was close. It? This is like when we started the interview. <laughs> Captain Foxhearts. Okay. Bad news bar and Spirit Lodge. Okay. And uh, I think he's wonderful. Bar and Spirit Lodge. Okay, got it. That's yeah. an awesome name for a bar. Um, Justin, look out! I'm coming after you. Yeah. Ira, look out! I'm coming after you. And I'll say it again. Um, well, before I say it again, how can we connect with you? Yeah, so, I mean, um, you know, Nick at EarlGiles.com, uh, at Nick Kosovich on Instagram. Uh, those two places will, will get to me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I did talk to you during the break. We're going to try to get Nick um, to join us live in the network to do a Q&A. If any yeah. of what we talked about resonated with you, and you want to speak directly to him, ask your questions, any questions I might have missed today. Uh, so stick around for the closing thoughts to get the date on that. Uh, and this is where I say, Nick Kostovich, thank you so much, my man. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Thank you, sir. Cheers. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Nick Kosovich. Not Kosovich, but Kosovich. And I think this is a special example of what hospitality truly, truly looks like. He could have corrected me when I said Kosovich, but he did not. He made me feel warm and welcome and safe in his space. And that is hospitality. But I do want to just point out that I did mess up his name and he was a great sport about it. Thank you, Nick Kosovich. And uh, this episode was a beautiful example of what happens when you stay in your lane, you become a person of value, you become a specialist, and you, you find partners to go further together. Nick is a barman. He is a mixologist specialist. He is an expert at what he does, and he leans into his strength to make other teams more powerful, more successful. So what is your special skill? What is your lane? Get better at it. Lean into it and go further together. And um, 2024 is around the corner. This is our last episode of 2023. I'm excited for 2024. We're going to be launching our content library. We're going to be keeping the the community element of Restaurant Unstoppable. And I'm going to be doing some coaching. If Eric Cacciatore is going from zero to five restaurants in five years or less, 
what's the approach he's going to take? Who are the people he's going to be partnering with? Who are the experts that he would be going to? We're going to have live coaching. So if you're interested in that, it's going to be $3,000 for 12 months of coaching from me and my hand-selected experts in the industry. Uh, This is exciting. I'm excited for that. The plan is to still get into an RV at some point in 2024. Uh, We are working on the, the financial plan for that as we speak, but I need to get back on the road. So if you are in the Southeast or Florida, I'm talking the Carolinas, Florida, Georgia, please let me know if you have a crash pad for me. I have a budget of $50 a day that I can send your way. I just need a bed and a desk. So let me know if you're in those markets Then I'm planning on heading west towards California with stops in Texas and Arizona. I'd like to also hit up uh, Las Vegas. So if you're in those markets and you have a crash bat, again, $50 a day, I can send your way uh, for helping me stay on the road and keep this thing honest. And um, hopefully by March, we will be in a mobile situation. So stay tuned to that. And um, yeah, I think that's it for today. Thank you to the people who make this show possible. Thank you, Jared Parisi, for your copyright editing and just your virtual assistant support. And thank you to Callan Miola, our community manager, who's killing it. We're going to come into 2024 stronger than ever before. And it's because of my team. That's it for today. Again, thank you guys so much for an amazing year. 2023 was a blast and I can't wait for the future.